listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with your host, Big Willie and the Samurai. Hello. <laughs> yes. We got another good show for you this week covering uh, Hell in the Pacific from, I believe, 1968 uh, from John Borman, uh, starring some very masculine actors, to say the least. And uh, what, what year did uh, Funeral Parade come out? 1969, starring some very feminine <laughs> actors. Yeah, male actors, that is. Uh, so... Yes. Uh, some interesting Feudal Parade of Roses, 1969. What an appropriate year for that. And <laughs> <laughs> some interesting talk coming your way uh, this evening. So um, we'll go ahead and jump into what we've been watching and stuff. So I'll let, go ahead and kick it over to you, Dr. William. Okay. This week, you know, I talked about this off the air a moment ago. A little lighter than me. I've been at a breakneck pace. Um, Partially due to the fact that my schedule has been a little bit different. Mondays, I usually go see my mother in the city. Mm-hmm. I haven't done that the past few weeks. Um, so means right wait i didn't do that uh lately so <laughs> hang on you know what i haven't watched as much movies so i'm just sort of say that. there we go <laughs> what i have watched uh is the following um i watched beast stalker which is a chinese film um it's one that i'd heard some pretty good things about hong kong has been a little dry lately quite frankly though and mm-hmm. and this one sort of um i think encapsulates what's wrong with a lot of the chinese films nowadays um because they're a communist country, they still have a pretty strict censorship thing where you can't show certain things. There has to be a moral sort of uh, compass in the film. You know, they can't have a lot of these darkly sort of uh, criminal films that, that they're, they're known for. Um, right, so it's right. okay. I mean, it was tepid at best. I watched Inc., which I know Matt Suzaka and Doc uh, were really championing. It's um, an interesting sort of science fiction fantasy film. Um involving nightmares and dreams and the people that uh, create them, I guess. Uh, And it was a very low-budget film, but this director is absolutely one to watch. I think uh, everyone should check it out, I think, you know, to see hopefully what what is the birth of uh, a long film career for this director. Right. Um, I watched Pedro Almodovar's Broken Embraces with Penny Cruz. Um, It's got a lot of Almodovar regulars in it. I thought it was a really good film. I think it's, like a lot of critics have said, it is sort of Almodovar light. Um... I don't think it's earth-shattering, but, I mean, he's one of the best directors working today, so it certainly was a good film. Um, I watched Sion Sono's four-hour uh, <laughs> essay on love, perversion, Catholicism, and upskirt photos by way of ninja techniques. Nice. Um, <laughs> very good film. Okay. Very good. Uh, and then I watched... Uh, <laughs> Speaking of, actually, no, not speaking of, but uh, Sean called in this week, and it sort of inspired me to watch a Paul Nashi film he had sent me called Human Beasts, which involves hitmen, the Yakuza, diamond thievery, cannibalism, <laughs> Mexican sort of style soap opera stuff. It's a uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty fun romp, and I just can't get over how much Nashi looks like Belushi. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, in some aspects he does, doesn't he? Jeez, does he ever, man. But <laughs> yeah, so that's what I've been watching, a little bit lighter than usual. But I mean, Love Exposure being a four-hour film sort of takes the place of two. Yeah, or three if you did like hour and a half films, really, almost. In a yeah, way, yeah, so. no kidding, man. Yeah, those four-hour films are always uh, a chore sometimes. I'm glad you enjoyed it anyway. Well, let me just say the four hours went by very quickly. And, and you probably will hear about it again. You okay. will hear about it again. All right. Uh, okay, so I watched quite a bit. I watched about maybe a couple more films than you did, uh, but not not a whole lot. And I think I got like uh, seven in outside of the two that we did. So I watched uh, Trucker. This is the uh, uh, Michelle Monaghan. Is that her name? Monaghan? Yeah, I always mix her up with Bridget Moynihan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually watched this on the recommendation of uh, Hollywood Babylon on the uh, Twitter, a uh, good friend of the show, Emily. And, uh, yeah, I really like this film a lot. Harry, uh, Michelle Monaghan and Nathan Fillion, nice uh, trucker movie, takes trucking seriously, kind of the lifestyle seriously and stuff. So I really did like this thing. It was really, really good. Nice little independent film. Uh, and uh, Michelle Monaghan, who I, I kind of like, uh, I really liked her in this. She was outstanding. So very good. Very good film. Recommended to everybody. Uh, I watched uh, Whip It, the uh, Drew Barrymore directorial debut. Uh, it was pretty good. It wasn't. It wasn't bad. I had a good time with it. Zoe Bell was in it. Uh, some other familiar faces. Uh, it, it was fun. I do want to see it. In fact, I almost watched it last week. I didn't get a chance to, but um, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, I worry about Ellen Page's career because I really don't know if she can do anything outside of a Juno esque type character. And you know, she started out pretty strong in Hard Candy because it's a little bit different. But yes. this feels like a Juno esque character in a roller derby movie in a way. So mm-hmm. I worry about that a little bit. But it's fair. It's fun. You know, I had fun with it. It's not not the, one of the best films of the year, but I did have a lot of fun with it. And Drew Barrymore shows a pretty good hand at directing a film. So a lot of people shit on Drew Barrymore. I do like her. I think she's cute and. I don't know. I like her. And here's a, here's a, probably the most interesting part about the film. It features a great performance from uh, Daniel Stern, of all people. Oh, wow. Yeah. I loved him in this film. So. Interesting. Very good. Playing uh, the dad of Ellen Page. Very, very good. Very good performance from him. Very realistic portrayal of parents, I think. Oh, good. So that, she definitely got that right. Some other stuff she got wrong, but it's still a fun little romp. Uh, I look, uh, I look directorial debut, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, hey. so. Uh, and she saved all the kind of wacky comedy lines for herself. And my wife's like, why would she be acting like that? And, you know, Drew Barrymore, she watched it with me. And she's like, why would she be acting like that? And I'm like, well, you know, it's probably was easier for her to direct the film and just kind of be the comic relief, I would say. Because yeah. it's a lot of work. Uh, I watched, uh, I finally got to see In the Loop, which I thought was very, nice. yeah, I thought was very, very funny. It's very, <laughs> it's very cerebral in a lot of ways and uh, very snarky. And, and I really like that, you know, I mean, it was very, you know... <laughs> Very uppity with his comedy and, and stuff. It was really, it was really good. I mean, I had a really good time with it and stuff. I don't know if it's going to be on my ten best for the year, but it'll definitely be an honorable mention. It really is a very solid comedy. And and Gandolfini again proving that post Sopranos, at least this year, he's got a great eye for projects between where the wild things are and this. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's a you know he's still a good actor. You know, I know he's he's done a role that he's going to be synonymous with the rest of his career, but. Uh, I still think he's very, very good, and uh, you know, very interesting, uh, very interesting actor. All the acting in it's actually really good. The whole film, oh. everybody's really good in the film. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Pretty man. funny. Uh, I re- had a rewatch of uh, Moon, which I watched on Blu-ray. Uh, watched it twice actually. I watched uh, that, and then I watched it with the commentary of Duncan Jones and stuff to hear how they did some of the stuff they did, which was pretty, pretty nice. Uh, I would highly recommend seeing Moon again. It's another film that I don't know if it'll be on my top ten or not, but it'll definitely be an honorable mention. Uh, a lot of fun. You know, as watching it again, I realized I really, really like the soundtrack, the music to that film. Yeah, it's really good. It's really, really good. And again, it's I'll take that over Avatar 
yeah. seven days of the week, man. Well, you could have made Moon, uh, I don't know what, 40 or 50 times. Uh, yeah. That's all I got to say. I watched a uh, documentary on uh, cinematographer Haskell Wexler called Tell Them Who You Are. Uh uh, I don't know why I watched this. It just kind of it was on the Netflix instant, uh, instant, and I watched, and I just kind of watched it, and uh, pretty interesting. Haskell Wexler is a very interesting guy, very confrontational person, and very political and and whatnot. But he, uh, it's a very interesting little film done by his son, a father son. He, uh, you know, and so it's real interesting to watch the dynamic because it's a real kind of kind of broken relationship between a father and son, and you got a father who's known for you know being a great cinematographer and a son, and they're constantly bickering about what's the best shot and. <laughs> It's uh, it's pretty interesting, uh, very realistic, obviously, because it's a documentary portrayal of father and son issues. So very interesting to me. Oh wow, what is he lensed, by the way, Sammy? Uh, some stuff he's lensed uh, would be well, fuck. Now I can't think of anything. Obviously, let's I just say that he uh, he directed a really good film. I don't know if you've ever seen it with Robert Forster called Medium Cool. Uh, no, I I'm aware of it though. Yeah, and he's done a lot of other stuff. I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. He was originally on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's, I mean. If I if I was looking him up, he'd have plenty of stuff. But uh, yeah, he's he's just while you're uh, if you get a chance, just look him up and you'll see he's done a lot of good stuff. And he's one of the he's one of the great cinematographers to say the least. I really am kind of embarrassed that I don't know anything off the top of my head. <laughs> I don't know anything, so don't be embarrassed. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, uh, I also watched uh, the Kane Mutiny from 1954. This is the uh, Humphrey Bogart, uh, Fred McMurray, uh, Lee Marvin of all people, uh, playing a character named Meatball. Uh, <laughs> this is a uh, you know the Kane Mutiny film from 1954. I had I had a lot of fun with this. I've always enjoyed the film. It's a uh, you know it's about uh, you know uh, sailors on a naval ship and some you know some mutinous behavior and stuff. And I always liked it, so it was good to watch it again. Uh, I watched that in high definition. That's the only reason why I watched it again to see it in HD because it was on one of the channels I watch. And I watched uh, the worst film I've seen this year so far. Oh wow, what's that? It's called the Chaos Experiment. Oh, uh, I think I've heard of that. Who's this in that this is uh, Val Kilmer, uh, Eric Roberts, and Armand Asante. You would think that those three, <laughs> you know, would it would be good. Yes, but this is a film about uh, global warming, uh, about the effects of global warming. Basically, uh, Val Kilmer locks some people up, including Eric Roberts, into a sauna at 120 degrees and leaves them in there to kind of prove to people what uh, what global warming will do to the human race. Now, its heart's in the right place, but this filmmaker is an asshole because he does this fucking heated vision thing on all the scenes in the sauna, and it just drove me fucking <laughs> in, it just drove me insane. Filmed in heato vision. <laughs> oh, I was so pissed off. And Armand Arsante, this film just takes place again in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Mikey. Uh, Armand Asante decides he's going to bring this real thick accent to the role. <laughs> <laughs> and it's laughable and actually i had a lot of fun with him and the, actually the funniest thing is Eric roberts the most subdued actor in the film that that's really <laughs> saying something yes because you got three scenery chewers in this movie and uh, roberts takes it easy actually but i thought you know with that cast i thought you know even if this is if, if even if this is just kind of lukewarm and average i'll have some fun with it but i hated this fucking thing and i don't say that often but i hated this movie if i was to give it a score i'd give it like a two Oh wow! I mean, I fucking hated it. It made, it just pissed me off. And uh, this director, this uh, Felipe Martinez, is his name. Uh, yeah, he needs to go back and do something. I mean, I'm not saying I, I haven't made a film, so he's got some talent. But fuck, this film was terrible. So worst film I've seen this year so far. I'm sure, it won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. That's all I've been watching. So again, the Gentleman's Guide bringing you lots of films every week. 
Oh, yeah. And that's a good thing. I mean, you know, like people have said, it gives us a chance to sort of stretch our legs with some stuff. I mean, we're never going to probably review too much Almodovar as much as I love him. I'm pretty sure you like him, too. And yeah. gives people a chance to maybe get into some of his stuff. I mean, he's, a, he's a, one of the best filmmakers in the world. And yet this Felipe Martinez, who clearly is not one of the best filmmakers <laughs> yes. in the world. Uh, not yet. Uh, I don't know if he'll ever have a chance. Not ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so just, uh, you know, avoid that. Anybody else that's seen it, though, if you want to call in and uh, chime in, I'd be glad to hear it. I want to hear somebody that likes this thing. So if anybody out there likes it, I want to, you know, let's bicker a little bit because... I can tell you right now, you're wrong. <laughs> it sounds like something Zom, if only for the actors, mm-hmm. that Zom would like. Well, or- Val's fine in the movie, okay? Val's fine, and uh, Armando Santi does a crazy accent, but he's fine in the film. And Eric Roberts actually is good in the movie. It's just, the problem is, is dude, you gotta see Hedo Vision. It's fucking terrible. It's like this really orange with like blurriness all over, except like right in the center of the screen. It's like, it's just a really bad idea. And I just never could get into it. And uh, ugh, just uh, and there's a real broad Italian guy who owns a pizzeria oh. in Brooklyn. And of course, he wears a speedo and the sauna, and he's hairy as fuck. And he's got gold chains on. I mean, come on, are we are we really still in that era? I'll tell you, you know, even before I married a, a beautiful Italian woman, um, I was always it just all I've said it on the show. It's always chafed me how broadly a lot of Italians are played. Uh, or the caricatures of them in films. It's, I mean, it's, it's. To be honest, to me, it's, it's not much above blackface. It's ridiculous. Yes, sure. I, I just find it insulting, and it's just so overdone and obnoxious. Well, you get away with it, right? Because they're white, of course. And of you know course. that's the way it goes. I mean, this is the way it is. So, if you have a broadly sort of caricatured Italian character in your film, I pretty much guarantee you all hate it. Yeah, yeah. This one's, this one's one of the worst I've seen. And I usually don't get too offended by it, obviously, but this one, uh, this one was just well. Not only was the the offensiveness there, but the actor was also a pain in the ass. And again, this that's not the actor's fault; it's the director's fault. He let him do, you know, he let him do all this stuff. So I blame the director. This thing's a travesty. I've talked about the cast experiment way more than I planned on talking about it. <laughs> yeah, let's jump off this turd. Uh, all right, uh, so uh, that's everything we've been watching. We're gonna take a short break and come back with some uh, reviews. Does that sound good, Large William? That sounds very good, right. Samurai. <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Hi, do you like comic books? I don't, but I own Comics Empire 2000. Pew, 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 We pew. have all your favorite heroes from Disney, Marvel, and Dickie, like Super Guy, the Fantastic Fork, the Dark Man, and his sidekick Robert, the Uncanny X-Men, and there's nothing funny about them. The Green Lamp and his corpse. The Justice League. Girls, do you like Twilight? We can watch it back at my place. Hey, if you like funny books, I've been told you should listen to A Little Dead Podcast. So go to alittledead.com and hear comic book magazines and about horrors. Don't forget to come by to the shop. It's located three blocks off the center of 9th and Main. You can't miss it. It smells like paint. And visit alittledead.com. If you don't want my love, if you don't need my love, baby, give it back. Oh, I'd like to have it back. If you don't need my love. 
Ah, yes, the sweet sounds of Bobby Womack this morning. Great stuff, Sammy. You're really bringing it with the Womack. My yeah. He's one of my favorites, Bobby Womack. So, you know, it's good to bring him on the show as much as possible. Oh, absolutely. He's got that raw sort of emotion in his voice that a lot of singers don't do very well. Yep, it's true. All right. Uh, so, our first review this morning is uh, Helen Pacific. From, uh, God, blah. <laughs> Helen the Pacific from 1968. Got my tongue twisted there. Uh, this is directed by John Borman. Uh, basic plot synopsis is, during World War II, an American pilot and a maroon Japanese Navy captain desert on a small inhabited island in the Pacific Ocean. There, they must cease their hostility and cooperate if they want to survive. But will they? All right, so, kind of ominous. All right, so I picked this film. It's kind of been uh, on uh, my radar for a long time. Uh, I think this is the first time William's seen it, so let's hear what you got to say about it, buddy. Well, thank you for picking it uh, before I get too much into my thoughts. You know, being a big Mifuni fan and a big Lee Marvin fan. Lee Marvin was an actor, I want to say as an aside very quickly. I got, in, got into him a lot later than a lot of the other tough guys. Um, and to go back and see that he did the movie with Mifuni, I thought, wow, this is going to be awesome. It's like, you know, just going to be great to see. So I want to thank you for picking it because it's one of those ones, it probably would have floated around in limbo for me for a long time. So let me say that. Um, I'm sure everyone that listens to our show is familiar with Boorman, of course. You know, he's made a lot of great films. Well, he's made a lot of some good films. Uh, yeah, you know. including a masterpiece of the 70s, in my opinion, Deliverance. I thought you were going to say Zardoz. Uh, well, that's a masterpiece in a different kind of way, Large William. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, Deliverance is certainly the one he's known most for. The 70s, he was at his peak. You know, mm-hmm. say what you will about Exorcist 2 or Zardoz. They have their uh, defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, before we get into too much, I want to say this film is scored by Lalo Schifrin. And normally I would say that that's a good thing. But as you'll see in my notes, that was far from a good thing. Uh, and I love Lalo Schifrin. I think this, but this might be the worst score he's ever done. This is an odd one for him. Yes, Jesus, is it ever bad? Uh, cinematography by one Conrad Hall, and Conrad Hall is one of the best uh, and sort of unsung cinematographers. Uh, he did Fat City, uh, Tell the Mully Boys here. He did Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid. Mm-hmm. He did Electric Light and Blue, Marathon Man. Uh, I mean, he's he's just. You know, a fantastic cinematographer, and to kind of tie back in what we were talking about at the beginning, he's, he was actually best friends with uh, Haskell Wexler. So, oh, interesting. He was in that documentary I was talking about as well. Conrad was before he passed away. Um, so we said, you know, the two iconic actors, Lee Marvin to Shira Mifuni. The interesting thing about this that I saw in, in the trivia was that both of them actually did serve in World War II, obviously on you know opposite sides, right. Um, but I thought that, that was interesting. And that's something you don't see anymore is the authenticity with the tough guys. You know, Lee Marvin was a military man. Hackman was a military man. Mifuni was a military man. All these guys that can bring so much to their role because, you know, they they lived it. Right, uh, right. Well, this film opens up and it's got a nice little opening sequence with the credits where it sort of opens with the sun uh, setting and then the coast of this Pacific island. Um and I like that the film jumps right into the fact that they're stranded. Nowadays, you would see, you know, the plane crashing and the big spectacle of it. But this film, they're already, they're already marooned, essentially, which I liked. Right, right. No, I really like that, too. Because, you know, I mean, nowadays, anytime we have two characters that are going to be, if we're going to be told a story in an area, we have to know how they got there. And I really don't. I really don't care for that. I don't think you need to ever tell anybody how they no. got there. I just would rather, you know, let's just start our story, and we don't have to. You can do it in dialogue. You can do it in, uh, you know, in facial transactions to each other. You don't have to actually go and show me the fucking plane blowing up. 
No, we know what's happened. It's inconsequent, not inconsequential, but it, it doesn't need to be shown. Um, so I like that. It's just a small thing. Again, you know, 70s, 60s, you know, it seems like the intellect, people had more faith in the intellect of the viewer. So I really like that. And I love the first on-screen moment with these two. Um, it's good for a few reasons. Firstly, it's just to see those two iconic actors in that frame together. It's almost like a DC Marvel team up, you know, when you get two guys that you just can't wait to see together on screen. And the thing I love about that is something that I can't recall which films I've seen it in, but when they first encounter each other, clearly there's a lot of hostility. And we see the imagined outcomes from both sides. Um, uh, Marvin stabs Mufuni, and uh, Mufuni imagines beating um, uh, Marvin with a cane yeah, or like yeah. a bamboo stick. Yeah. And I can't remember which films we've seen those in. I think a few samurai films. I can't remember now, but I love that uh, that opening moment. One of my notes here, I have to mention at this point because it's in it. Is there anybody in cinema history that runs out of a jungle or a forest with a sword uh, or any kind of object in their hand better than Mufuni? No, Mufuni <laughs> is as intense an actor uh, as anyone who's ever been on the screen. And Mufuni's just, he's one of the all time greats. I think. You know, most people are aware of his work, but I, I think a lot of times Mifune himself gets overshadowed because he worked with Akira Kurosawa a lot. And mm-hmm. Kurosawa is one of the all-time, I mean, you know, handful of the best directors to ever have made films. And Mifune is a large part of that. Mifune yes. is one of the greatest actors to ever grace the screen, and he really brings it. Yes, he really does. I mean, you know, he he never backs down his intensity, and he never backs down his believability. That's what I've always liked about him. I never, ever have ever felt like Toshiro Mifune is acting in some way. Even though he is very broad with his uh, his actions, uh, I never really feel like he's acting. I just always felt like he was this intense guy, which in reality, he was actually a very humble gentleman, That's what I understand. Yeah, and I know there was, uh, you know, I don't, we don't have, unfortunately, the time to go into too much. I'd love to listen to a commentary track on this. And actually, Sammy, just a little side note to everyone. Um, this film was originally released with no subtitles for the Mifune characters, so you could sort of, they would be able to convey the frustration that right. Marvin's character felt. And you'd called me yesterday and said, you know what, I have the subtitles, I've sent them to you, um, so if you want to watch it with subtitles, you can. You said not to, but the more I thought about it, Sammy, the more I thought it seemed a little one-sided, that I, I would know what Marvin was saying and not Mifune. Right. So I, I did opt to watch them with subtitles, just so you know. Okay. Um, but that aside, um, I do love the lack of dialogue in this film. Again, you and I talked about this briefly yesterday off the air that, you know, you get to see film as the cinema, the sort of visual medium that it, it's meant to be. And when you have actors of this caliber and a setting and a story that is, is, is as simple and compelling as this, you let the visual medium work instead of the needless extraneous dialogue. So I really love that. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is... Uh, pure filmmaking, uh, pretty much. I mean, you really got to hand it to Borman. I mean, you know, they go to a location and they're shooting, you know, and, and they're just making this story and they're not using a lot of dialogue and, and things like that. And I, I really like that. I really like that in some ways it portrays itself as a silent film. You can watch it either way. Uh, if you want to know what Mifuni's saying, that's that, that's fantastic. But if you don't want to know what he's saying, that's fantastic as well. It really, I don't think, doesn't diminish the experience either way. Uh there is something in the film that diminishes the experience, which we'll talk about a little later, but yeah, uh, and some reasoning behind that, I think. But uh, yeah, I think that you know, either way you opt. I just, I just wanted to give you that option yesterday. I was like, well, maybe I should contact him because you know, I, you know, he would do that for me, so I better contact him. Just let him know, just give him a heads up. So, and I appreciated it immensely, and I respect your opinion cinematically more than anyone. But I just felt that. I think it marginalized his character. But for me, anyway, I just mm-hmm. felt like, you know what? I know if I, it'd be one thing if Marvin was speaking Polish and you didn't know either way. Right. But 
you know what I mean? I just felt like I got to know what he's saying too. Even if you're absolutely right, it can be, it's very clearly conveyed to anyone with, with sort of his body language and sort of the contextual stuff, what he's yeah. trying to say. What, I just, I just felt like I wanted to hear it. What's really weird is, is it almost seems like, uh, this will be in like the second or third time I've seen the film. It almost seems like Mufuni has more dialogue than Marvin does. And so it's a really odd choice to not have the re- release the film originally dubbed or subtitled because, it almost feels like Mufuni has more dialogue in some ways. I don't know. Well, he also he's the one given a name, uh, whereas Lee Marvin's character, and this should be said, these are the only two people in the film throughout the film. Yes. You know, uh, and, and Lee Marvin's character is known as American Pilot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. whereas Mufuni's character is given the name Surahiko Kuroda, yeah. uh, we hear that. Um, this film, and I think this gets back to sort of the this, the the not requiring dialogue, but at times this almost feels like a Looney Tunes cartoon to me when they're originally sort of antagonizing each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a bit of comic, uh, stuff in here. Uh, I really like that. I like the scene. I like the, the moments with, uh, Marvin tied to the rack, the log oh, yeah. and, uh, the way he just kind of looks at Mifune with his anger mm-hmm. and resentment and the way Mifune looks at him. And then, you know, he goes away to go fish and he comes back <laughs> And there's, you know, this great moment where he looks up and he sees Marvin and the next thing you know, you know, I don't want to give it away, but it's just, it's pretty great. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's comedy, but it's not real broad. It's, it's kind of subtle and it kind of puts a smile on your face, but it, it also kind of, you know, lends to the bonding experience of the film, which is really the, I think the main theme of the movie anyway. Oh yeah. which is a very moving experience, but there's a fantastic shot of Mifune early on. And again, I couldn't help it. There's a few moments of really sort of you know, wily coyote kind of <laughs> moments where Mufuni's in the in the uh, the foreground, and it's pretty close on him, and he's doing something with his hands. He's sort of sitting down, and in the background, you see Marvin sort of slinking by behind him to try and steal some water, and yeah. or it's almost like Foghorn Leghorn and the dog, or, or just one of those cartoons. I just <clears throat> I really enjoyed that uh, that early on, and then you kind of see that after a few exchanges like this. I love that you kind of see the weariness in both their eyes. They sort of wash their hand over their face. And mm-hmm. I think at that point they start to realize, you know what? <clears throat> it's going to require more energy and it's going to be too tiring to keep this up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really love that. Yeah, yeah. You see the realization on their face quite often and, and, and almost every moment when they – because they can't communicate with each other. So they have yeah. to they have to communicate through body style, pointing <clears> – <throat> Uh, there's a great like uh, uh, mean scene with Marvin teaching, uh, trying to teach Mafuni how to fetch a stick, which is actually pretty funny. <laughs> it's very funny, and see, I'm glad I had the subtitle on for that. I mean, you still would have understood it, but yes. you know, Mafuni's playing stupid, and <laughs> and and Marvin sort of he's he's fetching this stick, and Mafuni's kind of like laughing to himself, and even says like, "You idiot, uh, why do you keep doing that?" Like, <laughs> you know, because Marvin thinks he's not understanding it, and it's just a fantastic little moment. Yeah, there's these great moments, and, and, and the, all these moments of them coming to having their moments of clarity come f- from each other, and I really like that. I like that, uh, you know, the way they re- interact with each other that way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, this film, it, it is a message film, very obviously. Yeah. And you know, one of the early things, uh, you know, that sort of tries to convey that message is that you know all their petty maneuvering and whether it's to annoy or keep the, keep the other away from something they're guarding. It just seems so ridiculous. And I think that's ultimately what part of the anti-war message is in this film is that, you know, it really, when you get down to it, they all have the same needs. You know, why, why exercise so much energy 
for something so silly and petty, which right. you know certainly is a large message of the film. Yeah, that great line in the film where it's like, "That's my log." Yeah, <laughs> my yeah. log. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great moment. Um, this is the second film in three weeks to have an Asian man being soiled by a bodily fluid. First, Gordon Liu gets spit on. <laughs> now, Tashir Mafuni gets pissed on. Yeah, we get the return of the golden shower on the GGTMC. The, the return, and I got to tell you, Sammy, I never thought that. You know, I, yesterday I would see Mifuni get a golden shower from another tough guy actor. <laughs> wasn't how I thought I was going to spend my day. Much like, as I told you a few weeks ago, I was watching Z Channel. And I never thought I'd ever have a day where at 2 in the morning I'm folding laundry, seeing Rudger Howard masturbate to a photo of a woman. <laughs> Just one of those things I don't expect my day to have. Yeah, all. that's the great adventures of cinema, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. Uh, we, I want to talk about both of their eyes for a moment because a lot of times they can't communicate uh, because of the language barrier. But both actors, uh, and as well as Conrad Hall's cinematography, helps this, that you just see so much conveyed with their eyes. And even when Marvin's face is covered in mud, you can still see his eyes and, and how you know how much they're able to express. And uh, I just think they both did a fantastic job with that because really that's one of the things they'd have to rely on, not being able to communicate. Yeah, I love those scenes of uh, Marvin covered in mud, and you only see the one eye, mm-hmm. and he's just staring at him, and Mufuni's getting so frustrated. He's like, stop looking at me, and at one moment where he covers him up with uh, trees and branches and stuff, next thing I know, uh, Marvin's done pulled a, like a ninja movie, he's behind him. Yeah. Still can't figure that one out, but either way, uh, I, yeah, I like all those moments where Marvin's kind of playing with him, and, and this really pissing Mufuni off, because Mufuni, the Japanese culture, he's very rigid, very set in his ways, and Marvin's kind of, you know... This American guy who's very laid back and kind of just pissing him off. <laughs> so they rub each other raw for a good, I guess, 45 minutes of the film, I guess. Yeah, about 45 minutes, things start to thaw. They're not fully thawed until about the hour mark almost. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. That's that's the first the first half of it really is that. Um, I get getting back to the Schifrin score. I just found the music in this film, it's, it's mind-bogglingly dreadful in spot. It's just... So overwrought. Um, yeah, I like, like the, the I like the stuff at the when they get the the shot of the horizon on the ocean. Oh yeah, that's what I'm saying. The the first thirty minutes or so, the music's really good, and mm-hmm. then it just mm-hmm. talked about overblown, overwrought. It's like they 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 shut down all the other sound and just blast this dreadful music. Yeah, it's uh, during the the raft scene. Basically, I don't think I'm giving anything away by saying that. So, and you get an organ that that just. <laughs> God, it's terrible, man. Um, this film, you know, much like sort of the bonding of two uh, two men, uh, there's a lot of nice small moments that, as small as they are, the the, the gesture is is significantly greater than sort of the surface uh, uh, gesture, or the meaning is is deeper than sort of what it would appear on the surface. Like there's a moment when. Mifuni's uh, sharpening a knife, and and he ends up he's sharpening Lee Marvin's knife for him, and it sounds you know really inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, but in the context of the story and their friendship, I really love that moment. Yeah, no, I like that too. That that shows you that uh, things have changed. Yes, yes. Um, we talked about the raft, which was a very impressive raft, whether they built it or well, obviously it didn't. The the production crew did, but it was a very impressively constructed raft. Um. I got to say that, it but like, it like sounded a, it like a sorry. boat, almost looked like a boat. It was a serious raft, man. It was very good. Um, 
the sound design on the waves and stuff when they really crashing because you know there's moments where I'm on this raft they're trying to make it get away from this island, and I love the the sound of like the waves crashing on 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 the the raft and like smashing against the bamboo. I think it gave it a real oomph to the moment. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, it goes on for a while is the only weakness of it. I mean, it goes on for a long while. But, uh, yeah, no, those, those waves, they, uh, you know, I kept thinking it's going to destroy this raft. And, you know, I, I got kind of surprised by it the first time I ever saw the film <laughs> and stuff. But it seemed like it would just just tortured it. And I can't imagine. Look, I have a natural fear of water. I'm not going to lie to anybody. I'm not a, I'm not a swimmer. Uh, I don't mind water, but I like to be able to stand up in it. I don't like to be able to, I don't like to be able to feel nothing below me. I agree. Uh, don't know if it's Jaws or whatnot, but I've just always been kind of scared of water, uh, and or just deep water, I should say. The idea of being on this bamboo, you know, this little raft that's built out in the middle of the fucking Pacific Ocean during a storm petrifies me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just scares me to no end. And you know, I had thoughts, I had memories of of a hollow rising while watching this. Uh, it's so funny you say that. So did I. You know, the moments when they're kind of slumped over. Uh, on the raft and there's water washing up on it and just how long it took. And I'm okay with that again, because it's trying to convey their, the length of their journey. But yeah, I, I totally felt that way too. Um, we talked about a small gesture a moment ago with, uh, with the knife sharpening. There's another one that sort of, it's Marvin reciprocating that you can see Mufuni's clearly exhausted. They've been on this, this raft, the sun's been smashing down on them. Mufuni's lying on his stomach. He's just, he's spent and Marvin takes this, um, this cloth from like one of their shirts or pants and he covers his back with it to kind of help him with the sunburn. And again, it's a small thing, but it, I, it was a very moving thing. You can again, see the friendship and, and how much bigger it is than just a cloth on a sunburn. Right. Right. You know, I just, I love those, those small moments. Um, the film progresses, uh, they end up, uh, they find another Island. I don't want to say too much about that Island, but um, there's an unbelievably tense moment when Marvin fears for Mufuni's life because of a discovery that I, my heart sank. I thought, oh, my God. You know, it, it's, I really like that uh, that moment in the film. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's that's a great moment. Uh, actually, that would probably be my make or break if it wasn't so far into the film. Uh, but it's a really, really great scene. And obviously, I don't want to go into it either, but it's one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. I mean, your heart just sinks. And then... It, this is probably pretty much my last note. Um, there's a dis- they're on the time they discover some knickknacks and keepsakes from sort of the shattered lives of others. Um, and some of the things are deeply sad to see because you can sort of your mind starts racing as to or building up a history to the, the objects they find. And some of the other things they find are sort of warmly comedic. Um, and I sort of like that balance between the two. Yeah. It doesn't allow it to get too heavy handed. It keeps it a little bit lighthearted, but then the ending, which I'm sure we're going to, you're going to bring up, mm-hmm. it seemed rushed to me. And I, I know the message. I get the message. Mm-hmm. The, the immediate moments leading up to that point, I understand what they were trying to say, but it marred it a little bit for me because I think right. they did the characters a disservice to have those immediate moments leading up to the end happen. I didn't like that. And again, I understand what Boorman was going for. Yeah. But- well, here's the thing. I'll bring it up now. I think Hollywood has to do with the ending we watched. Boorman actually had went with an ending that was much more ambiguous and really left uh, the film hanging. And uh, the studio did not like that. They wanted something that was a little bit more, had a little bit more punch to it. And uh, so there, there's two endings to this film. 
and I think the DVD is out of print. So the alternate ending is on the DVD if you can get a hold of it. Oh, good. Uh, I like the alternate ending better, uh, and I'll tell you what it is off the air. Uh, I, I think I may have read into this, but yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that ex- that well, I'll just say I'll tell you what happens off the air. But if you uh, really, it's no secret. If you look around IMDb, you'll see the answer. It's right there. So mm-hmm. very interesting. Uh, I don't I don't understand what they were going for there, but uh, evidently the studio did not like what Borman had in mind. And in that way, it's it's very much an art film in a lot of ways because you know it's not your gender. This is not your normal tough guy movie. Uh, it's a, in a lot of ways it's got a lot of deep themes and it's trying to uh you know trying to say some things and i think i you know from what i remember of the original ending i like that that a lot more uh and you see a lot of it coming in this in this version of the film uh but just a little something tacked on toward the very end there <laughs> which i knew would harm the score and uh and then that it does it does me too in that capacity so I just, yeah, I just felt, I don't know. I don't want to spend too much time on it because we are pressed for time. I want to get some of your thoughts on the this film. This seems abrupt. Really it is. It's very abrupt. Very. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that uh, you get the Japanese-English crew on the film. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a co-production here, and uh, I think that's very cool to see these people working together, making a great movie. Uh, I don't know if it's, you know, it's one of the great films, but it's certainly a great movie for me. Uh, I always felt like the film is a great example of all elements, including location, telling a story. Uh, it's a good example of that, you know, if you got a good idea, you can keep the story very, very simple and you don't really have to, you know, do anything fancy. You don't have to wow me with anything. You know, it's all about human interaction in a nice space. So I, I really like that. Uh, I like, I do enjoy that passive aggressive nature of their initial meetings, you know, like they're all, they're always trying to, <laughs> they're always trying to get each other, you know, piss each other off. I mean, like basically the first 30 minutes of the movie is all about getting some water. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and uh, there's a really, really fantastic scene in the in the jungle where the rain starts and it's hitting these big leaves. You know, mm-hmm. and it's really, really great. And there's a lot of moments in this film. I realized watching it again, there's a lot of moments of tension buildup and no payoff. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that I think that's what Borman was going for. And I, you know, I think that you know that's that's the overall theme of the film, and that's where Hollywood gets involved, and they. They don't feel like there was a, you know, they didn't feel like there was a payoff, I guess. So I think that that's the the theme of the film is that the tension. It's not about the payoff. It's about the tension itself. Because, you know, you got these two guys who yes. they have no reason to hate each other other than the fact that they were told to hate each other because they're enemies. You know, I mean. Yeah, the, I think, you know, yeah, totally. You nailed it. They're, they're both humans. They have the same needs, which when you strip away everything else you see on this island and which they see, which leads their discovery and their friendship. Right. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, they might have missed the boat by tacking on some things they tacked on toward the back end. Uh, uh, I really like that moment, too, where he finds Marvin. You know, of course, I didn't know he was going to put him. I forgot, you know, first time I saw it, I, I didn't think he was going to put him in a, you know, like a stockade type thing. But I like that, you know, he helps him up and stuff. And he's all, you know, just completely probably dehydrated at this point. And the great moments of them fighting over a log and and all the silliness and stuff. And, you know, there's just all these enlightening moments of them uh, getting to know each other. And that's. That's really what the film is for. I mean, that it's really just you know two people who have nothing in common. Cultures are different, uh, but showing that you know there's these base human survival instincts that we all have, and putting. I mean, you know, I might have differences with this uh, religious belief. I might have differences with this person. I might have differences with, you know, this film or whatever. But when it really comes down to it, you know, we're all just human. And I think that's really the basic theme of the film. You know, it really 
you know, we need each other to survive as even, even if we don't want to admit that. So mm-hmm. that's what it basically comes down to. Uh, and yeah, that, that scene of desolation and stuff toward the back end of the film, pretty interesting stuff. You really can't get into it, but there is that heartbreaking moment. And again, it's a great example of tension building. You think you know what's going to happen, uh, but that's not what happens. So I, I found that very interesting and stuff. So most of my notes are really pretty much that. I mean, you pretty much went over everything I went over. So I really don't have a whole lot more to add to it. Uh, and, of course, I can't really go into too much about the end without giving the film away for those who have not seen it. And I don't want to do that. So uh, no. let's just say that if you get a hold of the DVD, you can see both endings and uh, decide which one you like best. Uh, that's that. All right. So I'll kick it back over to you for MVTs and scores. Okay. My make or break is something I intentionally left out in my notes. It's once they've discovered all these sort of knickknacks from sort of uh, this island, uh, they discover, you know, some things like scissors and and mirrors and and some sake. And I love when they both have a chance to shave and they get dressed in these clothes. They find that are nice clothes instead of the rags they've been wearing. And they, they give each other a look and they have a toast over some sake. And I, yeah. Absolutely love, love that moment. Uh, that look they give each other. Nothing needs to, but I it just it sort of is the pinnacle of of, of their friendship uh, and what they've endured together. And now they can look at it sort of in, in a and look, reflect on it a little bit more in a, in a civilized manner, uh, you know, so to speak, in terms of the the dressings of the moment. So I really love that scene. And there's a lot of great scenes in this film. Uh, my MVT, I would be stunned if, if this wasn't yours. I don't know that it wouldn't be, but um, it's their friendship. I think you strip away all the bullshit and, you know, the human needs are the same. And we see that uh, through these two men. Um, and I just think it was, it, you know, you get two actors you don't care for. You got an exercise in tedium, but these are two of the greatest actors uh, you know, to work and to see them together with nothing else, just two men. Uh, it really works well for me. My score for the film is an 8.25 out of 10. This is one I definitely plan on owning uh, in the future, uh, as long as the out of print price isn't too high. Right. Um, I just think it's an amazing film. It's, it's a film that you could we could picture our fathers liking and yes, and so on. It's just an amazing film. I really liked it. Like I said, it's a little bit flawed in spots, but the strength of the two leads and and the cinematography and whatnot. Uh, really do wonders for it yeah i mean i'd like a nice blu-ray release of this please mgm somebody yeah kidding <laughs> just a re-release in general but i would like a nice blu-ray because it, it's a beautiful film to look mm-hmm. at i mean it's just fantastic they shot it in the islands of palau and uh it just looks fucking fantastic and everybody's seen the islands of palau they show those rock islands all the time in films so uh this fucking gorgeous to look at uh I love that and i love a commentary too because john borman does uh, he gives great commentary let's put it that way <laughs> Yeah, I would love to hear a commentary by Borman. Yeah. Um, uh, also, let me add that I didn't. I, I had this in my notes and I overlooked it. But uh, you, uh, you've seen Enemy Mine, right? Enemy Mine, the Dennis uh, Quaid, so funny. Louis Gossett Jr. film. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love that film, and that's pretty much a sci-fi version of this film. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was looking through the trivia, and they were like, "Oh yeah, it's basically been remade and kind of readapted." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, it was Enemy Mine." So it was on my notes. I wrote down here. I wanted to kind of bring that up because i knew you did like enemy mind quite a bit and i was like yeah <laughs> i knew that going in and then of course i picked this film and i was thinking about it yesterday after i talked to you on the phone i was like he's probably gonna like this film <laughs> oh yeah well a big big movie from my childhood certainly and yes 
you know, it was just it was very cool. Like I said, to see these two guys together, man, Marvin and Mufuni. That's that's quite the dream team. Yeah, uh, my MVT is the same. It's the friendship. It's Marvin and Mufuni. It's the camaraderie. It's the competition. It's all of these things. And I, I kind of like where it was going on the back end of the film, the kind of ambiguous way it was headed and stuff. And obviously there's some, some messy stuff going on toward the back end for other reasons. But I like that it's complicated, like friendships are. You know, friendships aren't always, you know, roses and, uh, you know, butt plugs. Sometimes it's other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I don't know where the butt plugs comment came from, but anyway. <laughs> Better close that one. Our next film. <laughs> yeah. It was a stream of consciousness. You thought of roses, funeral parade of roses, butt plugs, butt flowers. <laughs> yes, butt flowers. Yes, <laughs> is that Buck Flowers' brother? Uh, the butt flowers. Talking <laughs> <laughs> on air here. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, uh, yeah. My make or break is uh, I like the raft scene, even though I think it goes on for a while. You know, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about Valhalla Rising is this, you know, kind of craziness of. If you're out in the middle of nowhere and you got no water to drink, and I was thinking when they were building this raft, I was like, I hope they take water with them. But then I was like, where are they going to put the water? They really have no choice. It's really a very brave thing to get on a boat or a makeshift raft of any type and go out into the middle of the ocean. I mean, uh, because, you know, there's miles and miles and miles of nothing except water. And uh, this is very brave. Almost, It's almost, uh, maybe not bravery might not be the right word. It's almost stupidity in some ways, too, and desperation. It's all those things. Yeah, it's, it's all those things. Uh, but yeah, I really like those scenes, and I thought that their their bonding over you know those life and death elements was really, really quite magical between the two of them. I really really did like that quite a bit. Uh, I have to say that Lee Marvin must have lost they must have both lost a ton of weight for this film because Lee Marvin at one point in this film looks really rough, man. I mean he yeah, looked, he's a big boy, man. Yeah, he looked really rough here, but he always had the crazy eyebrow hair even in this film. <laughs> those eyebrows yeah, like yeah. they're very Vulcan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my score for the film is just a little bit lower than yours, but I could totally agree with your 8.25. Mine's an 8 out of 10. I think this is a fantastic film, uh, one that shouldn't be out of print, the one that should be easily available for everybody, uh, and uh, you know, two of the great actors in cinema history. Uh, Marvin has not always been known for his great acting so much, but he does have one of the great faces in cinema ever. I love him as an actor. I know you do, but... I know you know it's it's kind of arguable you know how many great great films he's actually in how great an actor he is Mafuni on the other hand uh, it's inarguable that he's been in some of the most important films in cinema history so I'll put Mafuni up against anyone De Niro anyone yeah he's if anybody wants to know if they can't figure out by the fact that I go by the online handle the samurai uh, Mafuni is one of my favorite characters of all time and my online avatar is actually a cartoon drawing of Mafuni so. I mean, uh, he's one of my favorite actors of all time. Top five all-time favorite actors, period. I mean, I just think he's one of the most brilliant actors that ever worked. And uh, Amen. I miss him. I miss him all the time. And every time I see him, I just I miss him. He's like, when I found out, when I was a kid, when I found out he passed away, it was like heartbreak. Because to me, he was, like, he, was like, he was like the Japanese Elvis of cinema. So, mm-hmm. so I loved him. So, yeah, an eight out of ten. I still think it's a very solid film. So I recommend everybody check it out if they can get a hold of it. So. All right. That is our review of Hell in the Pacific. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about butt flowers and uh, funeral parade of roses. We'll be back right after this. Listen. Do you hear it? It's getting closer. Much closer. Don't be afraid. Be very, very afraid.
journey with me through the dark side of cinema in the Dark Hours Horror Podcast. Find it at thedarkhours.net. Terror has no shape. It's far beyond anything your mind could ever conceive. It's actually kind of fitting for this film in a lot of ways, oddly. Yes. In some capacity, even though that music is obviously 30 years beyond this film. Yeah. Or maybe 40. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty pretty interesting. Uh, it's kind of got the same vibe for some reason. I don't know why I thought that. All right. So uh, we're going to talk about Funeral Parade of Roses. I'll go ahead and kick it over to you since you picked this film, which you synopsize. Okay. So Funeral Parade of Roses, 1969, directed by Toshio Matsumoto. Um this film, it should be known, uh, I know was available on Cinema Day Bazaar uh, because it's not, uh, hasn't been released region one. If you're in Europe, uh, Eureka, who does great work, has released it over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film essentially uh, says the trials and tribu- the, the summary is the trials and tribulations of Eddie and other transvestites in Japan. This film, uh, before we jump into it, caught my eye um, because I thought it looked interesting. And it also, as I've heard, was an in- a heavy influence on Kubrick for A Clockwork Orange. So... With that being said, I picked this film. Uh, there's a lot to chew on here. I want to know what you think about it, Sammy. All right. I was hoping you was going to go the route of uh, this film caught my eye because of the synopsis when it said other transvestites in Japan. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> Large William. All right. <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, there's a lot of themes in the film. And let's, let's get this out of the way. Let's get the basics out of the way of the film. This is directed by Toshio Matsumoto. Matsumoto and uh, I've seen nothing. Toshio Matsumoto. Have you seen anything else by Matsumoto? I have not, and it should be said, this was, as far as I knew, I thought was his debut film, although when I look at his, his filmography, there's a few other things. I think they, maybe they were shorts. Yeah. I think this was his first feature-length film. I've never seen anything. I am going to go back and see some of the, his other stuff. Now, I also think it's worth stating up front and very clearly in case, as we talk about it, it's not obvious. This is very much uh, an avant-garde, abstract film an art film that deals with some things that some people may not care to see. Yes. Uh, it's not for everyone. Uh-huh. Um, if you are an adventurous viewer and you want to see a fusion of Eastern sensibility with new French new wave sort of avant-garde, uh-huh. uh, then it is the film for you. But between sort of uh, the, the subject matter and some of the stylistic choices, it's not for everyone. Right. Right. And that's basically what I was going to go to go into as well. I don't know very much about Toshio Matsumoto. Uh, I don't know much about his filmography. Uh, this is the first film I've ever been exposed to of his, and uh, so I'm very interested now. I'm actually really interested in that one film in there, that Anthony, Andy Warhol's re-reproduction, whatever that is. Yeah. I don't, I don't know anything about that at all. I've never even heard of it until just today, so interesting. So the film deals with uh, identity a lot. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Kind of confusion on what you're seeing, especially in the first opening, like, what, minute, two minutes? Kind of the misdirection of the way the camera's working, and there's kind of some sexuality involved, and yeah, there's a lot of misdirection in the film with identity, I think. 
and obviously there that that's kind of set up uh obviously because you know the our lead character Eddie is actually struggling with his identity in some ways. I mean, he knows what he wants to be, but you know, like anybody that's a, you know transvestite, somebody that dresses uh, that's a male dresses like a female, vice versa, you know, they're having some identity issues. They're having some, you know, some they're trying to find themselves in so many ways. And uh, I like that. I like that it, right, right off the bat it's saying that. It's saying that right away immediately. And I actually thought, when I first started watching this film, I thought, holy shit, Large William has picked some kind of crazy Japanese science fiction movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it has a really interesting feel, Sammy. And I like that you mentioned the ambiguity of the opening scene, because whenever we see, not necessarily lovemaking, although we see bodies intertwined, I guess sort of making out or, or sensual moments, it's always ambiguous. What, you know, it's one of those things where, what body part is that? You, you know it's human flesh, but you don't quite know if that's an elbow or a knee or... You know, and I think that was certainly intentional on Matsumoto's part until the camera pulls back and you can see further what it is. Yes, and I, that, I think you know he's setting you up right from the get go as to what's this going to what what this is going to be, and I like that because now I'm in the mood for the film, and it's very very brief. I'd say maybe two minutes tops, two and a half maybe, and it's really really interesting that this little snippet uh, really set me up for the whole rest of the film. Uh, that's actually very rare, so I have to say bravo to that because I mean, you know, I was first, like I said, I was like, oh, what the fuck? Is it? Williams picked this really strange science fiction movie <laughs> <laughs> that I don't even know what the hell's going on. You know, it's almost like this almost Lovecraftian kind of body melding thing going on. It looks like, but it's really just kind of in camera tricks and uh, you know editing that does it and it really pulls it off very nicely. Uh, there's some documentary type moments in the film that's mixed to the narrative and. Wow, they're they're really really good and really really odd choice, uh, and this is where the film really kind of starts venturing into art world territory because I really found this stuff fascinating. This this kind of you get this this narrative going. Uh, you get some great scenes that are almost dreamy. That really great high scene where you're looking down on these people kicking this kind of inflatable thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And you know, I'd I'd read something, Sammy, that to sort of give some light on on Matsumoto's intention. He was a big fan of Italian neorealism film, mm-hmm. but he was also a big fan of avant-garde filmmaking that featured a lot more surreal stuff. And he wanted to try and fuse the two as much as really in spirit. They're a complete opposite ends of the filmic spectrum. So I thought that was interesting that he was able to successfully meld the two. Yes, and it's it's. I actually listened to an episode of Chin Stroker versus Punter. They did a, they do their their special episodes every now and then. They did one recently uh, called Style Over Substance, mm-hmm. and I like that because I think that I think that there's actually a perfect balance between the two because you know they kind of one took the side of substance, one took more to the side of style, sort of those two guys. But I think this is a perfect melding of both because this film is is very deep and uh, and very interpretive. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. And of course, you know we we don't really know who, what you got out of what I got out of yet because we haven't talked about that. Yet, but we're going to talk about that now. But uh, it's got a lot of style too. I mean, a lot of style. And that scene with that kicking of the inflatable toy, whatever it is, is so bizarre because you can't really tell what's going on. But it looks so interesting because they shoot it from such a weird angle, a high angle and stuff. And I couldn't tell what was going on. And it's just really fantastic the way they're kind of kicking this thing around and uh, kind of giving you this this stuff. And then of course, you know, you cut into the moments of the documentary like interviews. With even the uh, the clapper is even in there and and everything. I mean, it's just really really bizarre. So you kind of got to know what you're getting into. As, as Large William warned ahead of time, you got to kind of know what you're getting into because this film, this is a film that you're going to get out of it as much as you put into it. Yes, it's not a film that you can just you know throw on in the background and say, hey, you know, I just I watched Funeral Parade of Roses. It was okay. 
Yeah, I can see where you could get that, but you really got to watch it because it's it's very much a style and substance film where you have to really follow the themes because there's a lot of deep themes and the women, quote unquote, look uh, very attractive sometimes, and uh, we're quite confusing to the old samurai sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll blatantly admit that uh, old uh, uh, what's his name? What's the name of the lead character here? Peter. Uh, well, that's the actor, but Eddie, uh, Eddie the, who's played by Peter. Uh, what a name, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, Freudian slip, maybe? No. Uh, yeah. Do you think this guy looked like a female? Because I sure thought he looked like a female. <laughs> At times, yes, uh, certainly, as mo- as a lot of them, with a few a few unfortunate examples. Some of them never looked like females, but yes. some of them certainly did. Eddie being one of them, and it should be noted. This is interesting, Sam. We've programmed a Kurosawa episode without any actual Kurosawa films. You get Mifune, and then Peter, who's done a few Kurosawa films, and he did a Zatoichi film, actually. Yes. Yeah. It's crazy, so, isn't it? <laughs> very interesting. You know, they, they certainly do at times look like women. Yeah, and uh, you know, then, of course, you know you get the interviews, and some of them are, you know, I was joking around with you yesterday, some of them like, hey, yeah, you know, I like dressing like a lady. And then, <laughs> you, you said know, it was <laughs> like Lee Marvin's voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then some of them were like, oh, yeah, you know, I like, you know, and they, they're very feminine in a lot of ways, and... It's very interesting. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting uh, dynamic always when – I think it's always interesting to watch actors and characters try to – and not like a like a Tootsie type way or like a Mrs. Doubtfire type of way. <laughs> but like, you know, because that's done for comedy obviously. But I'm talking about, you know, actors that are truly kind of struggling. Maybe Jay Davison's a good – is that his name? The one that was in Crying Game, I believe? I believe that's correct. I, I hope I got that name right. I don't know. Uh, I might be wrong. Hopefully I got that right, though. <laughs> I'm not going to bother looking it up. So if I got it wrong, people can call in, chastise me, whatever. Uh, but I, I kind of like that struggle. I like that struggle on screen. I, th- I think it works well, and I like it when uh, they're comfortable in their skin. And it's obvious that the edit character is very comfortable in some capacities being this, you know, this cross-dressing person. And uh, there's, some really, <laughs> there's some crazy scenes with some really bad dancing. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, you get that 60s sort of uh, head kind of trippy LSD side of stuff, and they're yeah. just moving and grooving on the dance floor. Because a lot of the film f- centers around the relationships between the characters and the the frequenters of this uh, underground sort of transvestite nightclub. Right. Now, this has kind of been categorized as a pinky film in some ways. Which there's not really much nudity, so I don't see no. the pinky thing. I think because of maybe the sexuality in the in the context of mm. the film, but... It's not really a traditional pinky film. Yeah, and that's how I thought about it too. I, you know, but I was thinking about pinky films, and I was thinking that you know, in general, pinky films tend to be uh, kind of arty in general. They tend to be more about interpretation and stuff. I was thinking about the Pink Iga film of uh, uh, Gentle Cow Weeps at Dawn or whatever that film was called. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's open to interpretation. Some of it's bizarre for people. Some of it's uh, pretty blatant for other people. You can see see right through it. Uh, but again, it's interpretation, and I think that maybe in that way you get some some pinkiness, yeah, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I feel like this is more like a, a like a standard art film, or more like a standard uh, auteur type of piece than it is a pinky film, really, so to speak. And let's say this is an auteur type piece. I mean, it's written and directed by Toshio Matsumoto, so it's uh, you know, it's definitely his vision brought to screen. And I think Matsumoto even has a cameo as the porno film director. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, again, I'll say that the film is unique, uh, but it's not going to be for everyone. Uh, there are just some uh, some really great moments. You can see the stuff that Kubrick uh, was inspired by. I, I thought I was going to see more of it, but actually, in actuality, it was only a couple scenes really that he kind of uh, kind of harped on or kind of riffed on a little bit for Clockwork. 
and even the, the eyelash. I think that's one of the big things I'd heard was yeah. Eddie's long <clears throat> eyelashes. Yeah, and then there's the you know obviously the sped up stuff, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun. Uh, it's interesting to see that, and it, you know, uh, you know, Kubrick was a you know he was a student of movies. I mean, he loved movies. And, uh, you know, he would see everything, anything he could get his hands on. You know, if he was around today, he'd be like the BitTorrent master. (laughs) (laughs) This guy fucking loved movies, you know. So uh, he just, he loved that stuff. And, uh, you know, he was always, you know, one of those kind of guys that would kind of champion that this stuff should be available everywhere at all times so people can see it, you know. So uh, it's a shame that, you know, even now with him gone and everything else, it's still not that way in the world. still not that way. You still have to really, if you really want to see something obscure, you still have to really dig or do something that you shouldn't have to do to get to get a film it's really just a pain in the ass if you ask me but uh yeah you can see a little bit of it here uh and now i don't want to give anything away by saying this and i don't think i am but let's just say and you can correct me if you think i am giving anything away here let's just say that there is a uh, uh a moment that would make even uh lucio fulci cringe uh no no i think we'll leave it at that that's i think it, it, that's yeah I, I mean i thought that you thought that a review i read said that it would make him stand up and applaud so that's okay i think we're, we're fair to say that yeah let's just say that and if you're if you're if you're tactile enough to know enough about cinema you'll 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 know what we're talking about yes if not check it out then you'll definitely know what we're talking about <laughs> yes without a doubt uh, but here's what I got out of the film, Large William, uh, and I'll kick it back over to you for your notes. Here's what I really got out of the movie. I think there's stuff being said by Matsumoto about the way people see crowds and how people want to fit in with crowds and how people want to fit in with society in general. There seems to be a lot of shots, a lot of establishment shots of people walking around cities and, and they're kicking around with that inflatable thing and stuff. But it seems like people don't recognize or acknowledge people sometimes for me. And it, the only time they really do recognize or acknowledge the existence of people sometimes is when an event happens or when something happens that really draws attention. What I got out of it was is that, as a lot of things in society we tend to do, and there's nothing wrong with this, this is just the way society and people work, is we tend to not see the you know the people on the exteriors of society. We tend to not see these things and, and pay attention to people and uh, as much as maybe we should. We've kind of gotten away we have so many distractions from actually interacting with people nowadays, and even in, even in '69 we had these. We have so many distractions from actual interaction that I, that's what I really pulled out of this. I really pulled out that you know, Eddie, in a lot of ways, he he likes that attention, and you know, he, of course, he gets it in other ways, which I'm not going to go into in a lot of a lot of detail here because it'll sound like I know a little too much about it. <laughs> and we don't we don't want anybody to think that you know Sammy spends all of his times with uh, flowers coming out of his anus. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, you know, I feel like that's the theme that I got out of it. Of course, I'll be interested to hear what you got out of it. But what I got out of it was, you know, recognition, identity, uh, society, things like that. And uh, really, the film kind of kind of grabbed me in ways that I did not expect. And I really liked this thing. I, I was really surprised at how much I liked it. There was moments when I thought, I'm not going to like this. And then there was moments where I was like, oh, man, I'm really going to fucking like this. Uh, it really kind of tossed me around like that inflatable toy in that one shot I was telling you about. It really kind of tossed me around a little bit, but by the time I got to the end of it, I was really kind of enlightened by the experience. So I want to thank you for picking it. So I'd like to hear what your thoughts on Funeral Parade of Roses are. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, I also think that, yeah, this I, you and I talked about this off the air, how it teeters to at some points. It almost falls off the cliff into its own pretentiousness, but it bounces back strongly. So 
certainly you watch it all the way through. You're rewarded, I think, as a patient film viewer. Um, I really like that you mentioned that whole thing about society and and the sort of the isolation, despite being surrounded by people. I think that's something that a lot of times, as a parent, or has been one of the criticisms of Japanese society is how rigid it is and how sometimes distant it is. Um, and that's not to certainly insult anyone who's Japanese. I love Japan and the culture, uh, but I think that's been one of the criticism, at least in the older days, you know, this is 40 years ago, um, is that the isolation a lot of people feel. In fact, you see it a lot of times with a lot of the Japanese youth in films, disaffected youth. It is such a prevalent theme in a lot of Japanese films nowadays, even the Crows films, for example, or Bright, Bright. Bright Future, films we've covered on this show. But I, before I go any further, I want to say to everyone that a lot of reviews I've read of this film, thankfully I hadn't read any reviews in a long time, um, but a lot of reviews give away what I think is a major, major spoiler. I think if what we've told you is interesting enough to you, go out and buy the film um, or rent it, however you can get it. Don't read too much in the way of reviews because the most powerful moment in the film inexplicably is spoiled by a lot of reviews. Yeah. Um, so please, please, please do yourself a favor and let the power of that hit you the way it should without some, you know, some reviewers sort of spoiling it a little bit. Um, to jump into my notes, we do- you talked about this and you touched on sort of the ambiguity sometimes of, of body parts and the, initially the ambiguity of the man and woman as they're sort of making out. It's an overexposed scene um, and it's over this really haunting sort of sparse organ type music. And I really like that. That's pretty much one of the opening scenes in the film. And then it, it jumps to sort of reality after that, not as stylistic, where Eddie and um, uh, Eddie's sort of, uh, to quote a Stevie Wonder song, part-time lover. Um, <laughs> nice. I can't remember the guy's name. Right. The guy that ran the club. Uh, gosh, I can't remember his name now. But um, it, it, the lover goes to open up the blinds, and Eddie says, it's too bright. I don't like the, the, I don't like the light, essentially. Yeah. And... I like that because it's almost as if to say, you know, Eddie being a transvestite in the dark, he can sort of pass for what he wants to. But when you put this harsh light on him, mm-hmm. he feels a lot more vulnerable. Yeah. You know? yeah. He lives a lot of his life behind walls and curtains and behind mm-hmm. an identity he wears. It's, it's a nightlife. He, yeah. he really is more in tune with sort of being alive at night and yep. i think you can see the fragility in a lot of these transvestites just in their eyes and you know it must have it's it's scary 40 years ago i mean this this is this is uh impressive subject matter for the time even nowadays i mean this is still you know society still hasn't accepted a lot of people for their you know their what they they want to be or what they want to believe in right um i think it's an interesting stylistic choice to shoot this from black and white i'd said to you i think that this this subculture or culture uh, lends itself so well because of the not to generalize, but the flamboyancy mm-hmm. and the over exaggerated yes. femininity would lend itself well to color. But interestingly, uh, it's shot in black and white, so I, I thought that was certainly an interesting choice. Yeah, that was actually pretty stunning. I remember talking to you yesterday about that. I was like actually surprised the film was going to be in black and white. I didn't expect that at all. Yeah, yeah, no, it was an interesting choice. It sort of zigged when we thought it was zag, maybe, but. Um, we get it only only a moment really of a sort of a, a from like a helicopter or something a shot of Tokyo at night and it's just breathtaking even in you know forty years ago mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I loved seeing that and then there's a moment later on when you see it during the day and how much drearier it looks and I almost wonder if that's sort of the interpretation of how Eddie and and this sort of whole uh, group of people on the fringes view Tokyo uh, you know it's sort right, of that right. during the day it's a lot more drab and dreary at night it's 
excitement and, and very flashy. A lot of the lights and yeah. And so, I had I had a brief flashback of Enter the Void. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. If I had been in color, I totally would have because yeah. of Tokyo Night. Um, there's this thing that's done. It's done a few things, a few moments in the film where it almost looks like I don't know a worm or something. It's burning through the face of this picture. Yeah, I re- I don't know what the, what did they do. You know what they used to sort of uh, simulate that? Or I have no idea. I really liked it though. Um, yeah. We see flashbacks of Eddie and his childhood, and Eddie being abused, and uh, that'll come back later on when I talk about uh, the film in a little bit here. But uh, it's, it's really sad, you know. You see Eddie, sort of a, a very sensitive boy, sort of betwixt in between, and you know, not a very good relationship. His mother raised him, and and uh, she she can be a bit cruel to him. It's sort of a, a push pull. Sometimes she's a bit cruel to him. Other times she she is sort of more motherly, but. Um, there's an interesting moment where Eddie feels like he's being stalked by someone and he sort of goes into this sort of anthropological exhibit and there's one of those recordings going on and it sucks about how every man has his mask. Others use, uh, use a variety of masks and others are far from their original mask. And right. I think it's very telling uh, and in line with, with well, themes of this film. Yeah, and that's what I was going back to with the, you know, what I pulled out of it. You Because know, I'm a firm believer that everybody wears a mask to some degree. Oh, yeah. In different contexts, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, anytime you go somewhere, you go do something, you know, you wear a mask a little bit because, you know, you want people to see you in a certain light. You don't always, you know, you're not always your full-blown self. You know, I don't walk around, you know, in public with uh, my, as much as I'd like to, with my pajama pants on, scratching my ass and, <laughs> you know, doing all those things that I would normally do in the, you know, inside of my house. You know, uh, I mean, you know, when I'm out in public, I present myself in a certain way that I would like to be interpreted as, you know, that person. And yeah. I think there's a lot being said here. And, you know, they use, of course, they use trans, you know, transvestites and cross-dressing to get that point across. But you don't even have to go that far. You can just go with the fact of what you said. You know, that masks are, we all wear masks. We, we're, I think the human race is fascinated with masks in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. And, of course, me, you and I are scared of masks in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, there's a visually interesting, and they use a lot of different stylistic choices, negative photography, animation, undercranking, different film stocks. Still photography that you know, I just you know interesting they jumped all over the place but there's a funny interesting funny sorry visual moment where three of the transvestites you see the sign for the men and women's washroom you think they're going to go to the women's they go to the men's and they all stand up to pee and it's sort of behind them you can see this sort of long hair and this women's clothing and it, yeah. it was just sort of a visually humorous moment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I like the moment with essentially Eddie has this um, rival at the club they're both sort of one of them, Lita, wants to be the headmistress. Lita's a little bit older, uh, assumes more of an identity of a traditional geisha. Um, Eddie's a lot more young and sort of uh, forward-thinking, I guess, in a lot of ways. And they're rivals. And there's an interesting moment where they sort of duel with pistols, and it almost takes on that old film footage sort of silent photo look. And yeah. we see the pistols come out, and the word bubbles like from comics come out, and they start insulting each other. Yes, and it's humorous because you almost get like that little rascals moment where the three heads of the kids are like they're all looking at this fight. It's almost like the shootout in the old west about to break out. Yeah, that's why I want to see some more of Toshio Mazumoto's films because I feel like he's got a lot of influences that you know he only used bits and pieces here. I want to see some of his other stuff. Oh yeah, because he, oh, he yeah. seems to me like he's pulling from all kinds of stuff, and I want to see what else he pulled from in his career. So, oh yeah, well even the scene when. They run into the women, and the women insult them. And it almost—I love the moment when the three women—they're about to fight the three transvestites, and the three women in synchro sort of roll up their fists, they roll up their sleeves when they're yeah. about to fight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just a great <laughs> little moment. Um, 
uh, gosh, I got so many more notes, but I got to get through this quickly. Um, there's a wonderful moment in the film when Eddie, who's sort of, you can see, is very conflicted as a young boy. He's sort of lost at sea. Um, and he talks about, uh, there's a line where he says, the day I was born, perish, and disappear. And he puts on lipstick for the first time. And uh, the moment to me was so powerful because he's looking in one of those mirrors that's got three mirrors on it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, he was born, you know, this new Eddie. Uh, he perished his old traditional identity and he sort of disappears inside it. And Eddie's eyes in this moment were so sad, you know, so lonely. It was honestly one of the, I don't know if I've ever seen eyes look that sad in a film. And you could tell that uh, Peter, who played Eddie, I know it's a bit confusing, uh, was. <laughs> certainly drawing upon, I would imagine, real-life experiences because that was real human emotion we saw in that moment. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, every moment with uh, Peter, the actor Peter, uh, are, is an interesting moment. There's never really a kind of throwaway moment for this character. You can really see that the director and the actor really concentrated on bringing emotion out in Eddie's face. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, in that scene later on, and this is something that if it's not done well, would look ridiculous. But Eddie is so lonely as a young boy because his mother's at this salon and she's sort of running around with men and stuff that Eddie's sort of rolling his cheek on this mirror as if to the the touch of another person. He's looking at his reflection. He kisses the mirror. And it was just heartbreaking to see uh, in the film. I really like that. Did you know that? Did you know that Peter made a guinea pig film? I didn't know that. Uh, I may have seen it because I've seen most of the guinea pig films, unfortunately. Uh, this but one, this one is called. Uh, what is this one called? Devil Woman Doctor. I don't know if I've yeah. seen that one. That's uh, that's this this actor is all over the place. Just yeah, looking through, know. just looking through some of his stuff. I mean, he's all over the place. Kurosawa, uh, everything, everything yeah. from Kurosawa to guinea pig films. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, interestingly, a lot of the acts of violence in this film they look so awful in sort of the shadows of black and white. Yeah. Um, you know, you get the blood on the white tile and the terry cloth and stuff, uh, mm-hmm. which I won't talk about too much. Um, and there's an absolutely stunning revelation at the end of this film that I did not did not see coming. And it makes sense in the context of, of Eddie and Eddie's psychology and Eddie's history and his, his sort of past. But, wow, I mean, it just floored me. And right. there's a moment in this when, again, Eddie's eyes where um, – it's it's like it, it pans down from the top of Eddie's head down, and it, it, Eddie looks like a completely different person. His eyes have almost this not evil. I don't even know what this dark sort of hypnot hypnotized look to him at this point. Once he discovers something or stumbles onto something, and yeah. I really really like that again. And you know, and then after that scene, which I won't talk about too much, you'd mentioned uh, it briefly, um, but there's almost this like Rod Serling esque kind of narrator that comes on and he says frightening cursed destiny of the man uh, of a man what a composite of cruelty and laughter and i just i really like that yeah i really like that moment um there's so many good things this film talking about the psychology of 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 people and their motivations and and how they get to be who they are and what they are and i could spend an hour talking about how eddie got to be where he is through the sort of childhood he's had and and there's sometimes there's an argument for are you born this way is it nature nurture and just a lot of stuff going on in this film that, that we could spend a lot of time chewing on but because of time i'm going to kick it over to you for make or break mvt and all that all righty uh my make or break for the film this is a weird make or break for me but this is what i really liked in the film i love the framing of the erotic scenes yep 
I love the way they're framed and shot. They're shot very, very well. And, uh, you know, I didn't get a rise out of them as much as <laughs> some people would hope and make fun of me for doing. But I think that they're artistically and well shot. Uh, the black and white looks great. The angles that Matsumoto decided to choose the way he shot this stuff looks really fantastic. And it's never pornographic. It's just, well, to a degree anyway. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's just really beautiful to watch these uh, scenes, the way they're framed. stuff. almost like really good photography. You know what I mean? Yeah, and again, just the ambiguity until the camera pulls back is 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 so in line with the message of the film to a degree. It's, yeah. it's really well done. Yeah, so that's my make or break. My MVT is obviously going to be Toshio Matsumoto. Uh, this seems like a kind of a fever dream of a film that came out of his brain. And it's pretty concise. It does have some uh, slow moments and some moments that kind of kick you around a little bit. But like all really good confrontational or interesting filmmakers... Uh, it can be sloppy in spots, but still interesting overall. Uh, my score for the film is a solid 8 out of 10. That's actually two eights this week for me. Uh, but I really like this film. I really thought I was not going to like it. And then, like I said before, I thought I was going to like it, not like it. It just kept throwing me back and forth. Uh, and yet, I can't get it out of my head. So it's this is one of those films that's going to stick with me for a while. So I recommend everybody check it out. But I do want to, again, remind everybody of the warning that this is not going to be for everybody. It's a very arty film and can be very difficult in some capacity. But if you're interested in that type of material, I think you're really going to like this thing. All right. I'll kick it back over to you. Good stuff. Uh, I was going to go with, uh, for my make or break, the scene with Eddie at the mirror. Again, it was just heartbreaking, yeah. heartbreaking. Um, how the loneliness, the isolation, the sadness. But that was until I saw the last 10 minutes of this film, which <laughs> yeah. is fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really dug it. Uh, I can't say anymore. To do so would spoil it. My MVT is going to be interesting. It's going to be Eddie's eyes. Oh, nice. As much as I could go with Matsumoto, I thought the the high points of this film for me all featured Eddie's eyes in some capacity. Yeah, that's really interesting um, if you see the film. <laughs> yes, yes, it will be. The vulnerable, tragic sadness, the anger, um, the the sort of uh, the mask that he assumes near the near the end. Uh, you know, you can't have it without the eyes. His eyes don't lie in this film in yeah, any way. And he's got great eyes, too. The actor, Peter, he's got fantastic eyes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my score for the film, I, it was an 8.25. I'm bumping it up as we're talking about it here to an 8.5. I think this nice. is something that as I watch it more and more and I chew on it more and more, I think my score may even go up as high as potentially a 9. I don't know. I mean, I just think it's an intre- it's a really interesting film that – like I said, it teeters into that sort of pretentiousness at times, but it finds its way and and, and finds its footing quite well. Um, and I think anyone who's sort of an adventurous uh, film lover would do themselves a service to pick it up. And I, I, I certainly think so. Yeah, and it was uh, definitely ahead of its time as well, as you said. You know, I mean, this is 40 years ago. That's pretty amazing. Or 30, yeah, 40 years ago. Jesus. 40. These are themes that aren't even touched on now. I mean, there's a character with an African-American GI we didn't talk about where he goes to see the trannies and you see a, bit, a slight sort of lovemaking scene. You wouldn't see that in a film nowadays. This is 40 years ago in Japan. I mean, talk about progressive filmmaking and breaking. This film, to me, like I said, almost at times its biggest strength and weakness is, is smashing through um, what is expected of film and what is expected in society. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff in the movie. So fantastic pick! Hey, everybody, check it out if you're into this kind of thing. If not, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, shame you for not digging into this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, some people don't like the art films. Uh, totally understandable. Uh, I used to not like them when I was younger. I just like them more as I get older, I guess. 
All right. That is our review for Funeral Parade of Roses. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to go over some listener feedback. Got quite a bit of it this week, so we'll be back right after this. Hey fans, it's Ken Forey. Just want to tell you about Mail Order Zombie. Great company. They review zombie films, any zombie film, every zombie film. And it's uh, something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Mail Order Zombie, and find out what the hot zombie films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the the cutting edge of uh, reviewing zombie movies. And if you're a zombie, or you want to be a zombie, or you're thinking about being a zombie, or your mom's a zombie, your dad's a zombie, your damn mother-in-law's a zombie, tune in to Mail Order Zombie, baby. You'll find out what's going on. Ken Forey, and that's out. We got some uh, listener feedback to go over, so uh, let's get going on that. What do you say there, Large William? Sounds like a plan to me. Okay, so our first email is from Dissolve Pet. Nice. Actually, let me add something to the promo or the uh, the end of the show here because our good friend Dissolve Pet has a podcast now. Yeah, we can actually tell everybody because uh, he has put it out there. Uh, Dissolve Pets actual name is you know his name is on the show is Ben so Ben from Dissolve Pet from uh, Gentle C- Ben yeah Cinecultania yes there we go that's a good show it's uh, sort of like the show show formula of a boy and a girl talking about <laughs> yeah there film. you go yeah <laughs> so it uh, works quite well um, but Ben writes in and his email is titled Raging Schrader Howdy, gents. I was wondering if either of you had read Paul Biskin's Easy Rider's Raging Bulls. It goes into great detail with regard to what a raving fucking psycho Paul Schrager was during the 70s and 80s. It's a fantastic book. It covers the transformation of Hollywood into a hippie sex, excuse me, drugs and rock and roll haven during the late 60s and through the 70s. Though it does get a bit boring during the 80s part, as people being fuckwits on cocaine is one of the least interesting things to read about. (laughs) Anyway, apparently Schrader was obsessed with guns and suicide and would generally frighten the fuck out of people. He also completely screwed his brother out of a lot of credits for the films they worked on together. Another great book is Phil Hardy's Encyclopedia of Horror Films, which was the first epic tome I ever read as a wee lad. It covers from 1895 through to 1984 or 85. There are a huge amount of titles covered, each with a description of plot and many review, most of which are of a more academic bent, which even though often too reliant on psychoanalysis, means there is a lot more detail than most many reviews. Also, uh, there, there it was, the first book to draw attention to a lot of obscure and bizarre international horror cinema, and to this day, it's still an incredibly useful tome. Finally, and briefly, as I run off to another day of standing around watching Dennis Hopper's art for him, my friend Alex and I have recently started our own podcast entitled Cinecultania. It was all sorts of films from Australian perspective, in an upcoming episode, we will be covering the aboriginal uh, romantic drama Samson and Delilah, 
an Aussie noir thriller, The Square. Also coming up is Howling Three the Marsupials, which I'm going to listen to the commentary for. Nice. So as to finally figure out where the fuck this film actually came from. <laughs> yeah. Marsupial werewolf nuns, what the fuck? <laughs> and another lost classic of Australian 80s cinema, Brian Trenchard Smith's Frog Dreaming, a.k.a. The Quest, mm-hmm. a.k.a. The Go Kids, starring the kid from E.T. and some crazy child stunts and spooky arse monsters. Yep. Well, thanks again for many great episodes. The Hardcore Uppins episode is fantastic, gents. You just keep getting better. Until next time, Dissolve Pet, a.k.a. Ben. All right. Probably the most interesting thing I heard in that was he says he has another day of standing around watching Dennis Hopper's art for him. <laughs> I heard him say that in the email. I was like, yeah, that's uh, very cool. <laughs> very cool. <laughs> I guess. He sounds like he was kind of bored with it, though, but yeah, who knows. Uh, either way, um, yeah, I have read that book, actually. Easy As of I, actually. It's been a while, though. It's been a, been a, been a long time. As Stained, the rock band would say, it's been a while. So it has it has been a while so then that's all and that's all they'd say <laughs> yeah yeah uh, i really don't uh i can't remember hardly anything but i do remember that schrader had a coke issue i do remember that <laughs> that's crazy that he uh I, I knew that he was very sort of suicidal and stuff but that taxi driver uh shoot must have been pretty gloomy because i know scorsese was kind of on the edge at that time because they wanted to cut his film and he was threatening or he had cooked up in his head that he was going to kill I think it was the producer if yeah. <laughs> he if he insisted on uh, cutting the film. I mean, he was he had a gun and he was you know, he he was up one night he hadn't slept. He was going to go shoot the guy. Yeah, I think uh Taxi Driver is definitely a film fueled by cocaine in general. <laughs> I guess, yeah, so you know, yes, yeah, Scorsese had a he had issues with cocaine too. So I mean, I think everybody in the 70s was doing cocaine and probably the only reason why I wasn't is cuz I was only like 4 or 5 years old, so <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you just nice. had, to give me, had to give me time to grow up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by the time I grew up, it was already gone, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. <laughs> uh, all right. That's, uh, I don't really have anything else to say. Yeah, check out Cinna Cultania. Check it out. And uh, a nice segue into that is Ben writes in to say, forgot to include the website for the podcast. It's too early in the morning. Cinnacultania.blogspot.com <laughs> or find us on iTunes. Nice. Thanks again, Ben. Uh, so I'll jump right into the next one, actually. It is titled Van Helsing. Achtung! Oh, and it's from Zom. Oh, yeah. The Good Doctor. I liked Van Helsing. I went to see it in the theater when it first came out. I wanted to see Jackman stomp some monster ass and bang Kate Beckinsale in the pooper. Boy, he didn't get that film. Uh, I loved the first scene with Mr. Hyde. I thought the CGI was cool, and I loved that Mr. Hyde was just a disgusting perv. And that his pants were hanging down, showing the crack of the arse. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along, the one disappointment was that I didn't think Beckinsale was as hot as she was in Underworld, and she didn't have a lesbian scene with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. No, Scarlett was not in the movie, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I really liked the Frankenstein monster and how he looked and how he was portrayed. Like the e. Igor character, as he says, because uh, he was so gross and nasty. Dracula was the way he should be and had some fine-ass bitches. <laughs> and I like me some werewolves. I need to go take a bath. You make me feel dirty for enjoying Van Helsing, and I also think I need to wash. My butt is itchy. So I'm out. Yes. Uh, I, here's what I will say. I think the creature design, the design itself in Van Helsing is fine. <laughs> because I saw some uh, some uh, production art and stuff like that before the film came out, and I got excited. Unfortunately, I think the execution is lacking. Uh, but hey, to each their own. It's a, for some people, I can see it being a guilty pleasure. 
uh, for me. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, if there was a lesbian team with Scarlett Johansson, it would be on my top ten of the decade. Yeah, it would have went up then, but I don't think that... No pun uh, intended. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, boing. I need my sound effect board. Need, boing. <laughs> yeah, I got a phone there. Yeah. <laughs> OTC action this morning. Uh yeah, I mean, the, the, but it just overall, it just it just looked like a. It's it's one of my biggest problems with films nowadays. It just looked like a cartoon to me. I don't like it. Again, I think I said this when I talked about Avatar. Which <laughs> I got to tell you a funny joke, man. I was on Twitter yesterday and I actually typed in the word Avatar, and my iPhone actually corrected it as Avatard <laughs> with a no D way. on the end. I was like, you know what? My iPhone wanted it to be that way. I'm not. Who am I to correct that? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I have the same problem. I don't, I don't really like the mix and match that much. I, I just, I don't know. It just takes me out for some reason. Maybe I'm just getting old. Well, I'll tell you what else took me out, as I may have mentioned when we first brought it up, was one of the worst accents in the history of cinema with Kate Beckinsale in that film. It was pretty bad. Jeez. <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm a fan of bad accents. You know, I like it when a bad accents in a movie. Some, I mean, if the acting is good, I can handle the bad accent and I kind of have fun with it. But. You know, sometimes it can be, you know, annoying and stuff, and you have fun, but I kind of like bad accents. As I'm not saying I like a film because of a bad accent. I'm just saying that sometimes it's fun to watch an actor struggle <laughs> through an right, accent. Dude, I'm like, doing an Irish accent? Yeah, I'm like, why the hell would they even bother doing that? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dreadful. The one that always pops to mind for me, as I've probably mentioned before, is, is one that came from a good actor in a solid film, and, and it's Malkovich and Rounders doing a Russian accent. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God! It's so and he's twisting the the top off the Oreos and it's just brutal, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm reminded of uh, Ben Kingsley in that Trans Siberian I watched in his Russian accent. It was good. It was just it was kind of yeah, his was better. It was kind of comical in spots, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it did it. But I mean, Malkovich just was one. For, oh God! But yeah, that anyway, is. It's <laughs> a good. That's a good example, actually. A film I like, yeah. but uh, yeah, Malkovich is kind of little. Uh, somebody who should have reined him in a little bit. That's a great yeah. Rounders is a really good film, actually, that other people don't talk about. Um, and it was before the whole poker craze, um, so yeah, it was just it maybe missed its its the timing was off. But anyway, next one is from Toby, and it says I don't think we've heard from Toby before. Oh yes, we did actually. My apologies, Toby. Uh, Gentleman's Guide to Laughing Your Ass Off. It uh-huh. says Konnichiwa, Samurai Son, Genki Desuka. Sup, Massive Bill? How's it going? <laughs> Toby here. You read out my long, super long email on the cruising show. Why did you do that, you fuckers? <laughs> I didn't want you to. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> Just wanted to drop another email, shorter this time, to see how much uh, you guys have been making me laugh lately. I've been catching up on the episodes I've downloaded so far, and let me tell you, I've almost crashed my car from laughing so hard. <laughs> easy out it's there. It's been snowing. At- <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful out there. <laughs> Maybe listen in bed, in the safety of bed, my friend. Yes. Um, uh, uh, it's been snowing around here a ton and it's really fucked up my work schedule because I travel to different schools around the country for meetings and stuff and schools tend to close when there's snow but that doesn't happen in Canada, eh, Willie? <laughs> nope, never <laughs> tropical paradise uh, so on detours, halfway to a destination I've cooled my frustration with your podcast blasting on my stereo and really enjoying the discussions on stuff like Santo, Rage and Cajun, etc Hammerhead, etc very funny stuff also had a cold and been feeling as rough as Susan Boyle's cunt, so <laughs> Whoa. a laugh is always welcome. <laughs> hey Also, won- <laughs> also wonder if Shane Meadows' movies, Dead Man's Shoes, This Is England, have ever been or will ever be covered on your show. 
Just interested to hear what you guys make of his work. I'm a big fan myself and thought you might enjoy the realism in his films as you enjoyed the Pusher Trilogy's documentary style. Love the show. Love Samurai's Kentucky accent. Not in the same way my American friend Karen gets all moist thonged over my accent, you understand. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Love I love the tender moments when Willie tries to get his son on the air. It's adorable. Sayonara, Toby. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, Susan Boyle's uh, cunt, huh? Hmm. <laughs> that could be a rough area, I'd imagine. That's all I'm yes. going to say. <laughs> Densely forested. Yeah. Untouched by man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, it's like the, the the green what is it the green inferno in uh, in Cannibal Holocaust, <laughs> dense foliage and deadly, and somewhere in there Diodato screaming. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're being very very cruel, but uh, you know it's just a joke. <laughs> yes. Oh, I don't really have much more to add. Just be careful if you're going to listen to us driving. Uh, we don't. It's funny. We we both think we're funny because we laugh with each other because we're good friends and stuff. But I really never have thought about the fact that we might be funny to other people. So me neither. Me neither. <laughs> it's just yeah, like you say, because we're good friends. It's like you know we sort of have that that similar sentiment on a lot of things, so we can sort of get little quirky jokes that most other people wouldn't laugh at. But yes. no, that's that's good that other people get it. But I want to mention Shane Meadows. I'm a huge fan of Shane Meadows. Um, I love. I think I've seen two or three of his films, and the ones included I've seen, Dead Man's Shoes and This is England, they're both fantastic films. I think we'll do Dead Man's Shoes on the show at some point. Um, it's it's just an amazing film, and I wish Patty Considine did more work like that. Yeah, we might we might be able to do like that kind of thing like on one of our Double Deuce series type thing, like a This is England and Dead Man's Shoes type thing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. Uh, I have not seen either film yet. They've been on my queue to watch, or in my to-watch pile, whatever you want to say, for fucking ages. And it just seems like... Something always gets in the way of me watching it. And he, even when uh, Large William called me and said, hey, did, have you seen Dead Man's Shoes? And I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, dude, you got to see it. And this has been like eight to ten months ago. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I, I still haven't yeah, gotten to it. <laughs> it's it's an incredible film. And Constantine, you know, he's in this Red Riding trilogy, which I really want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, it's out now. I believe it's out on DVD now. Maybe it's out in theaters. Um, I just wish he did less comedy and more serious stuff because – when he's on, man, he's one of the best actors working. He's a very chameleon-like actor to me. Yeah, he is. He can slip in and out of very many roles, and possibly even Susan Boyle. But uh, <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the beard he sports in—I'm uh, not even going to go there. Never mind. <laughs> Speaking of sporting beards. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Mm. Um, I wanted to make a correction. I'd sent us this email, Sammy. I, we had mentioned how, oh, Lindsay and uh, Henry Silva hadn't worked together uh, other than this one. I'd watched Manhunt in the City. And they had, I'd forgot, they worked together in Almost Human with Thomas Millian. In fact, Henry Silva plays the good guy in that. He's the cop to Thomas Millian's sort of over-the-edge criminal. And in Freehand for a Tough Cop, they also worked together. So it was the third film, or they have worked on three films together. So just mm. a little correction there. Uh, Thomas Millian, over the uh, kind of an over the top uh, bad guy. No, uh-uh. he's see, he's <laughs> mo- so much better when he's over the top than when he's subdued. Because when he's subdued, it's just not the same. And when he's really bringing, it, he's chomping on the gum, and he's just yeah, he's a big fan. You know, he's a big fan of taking it over the top. And, oh uh, yeah, and he does it quite well. He does do it quite well. Um, just a couple other things that we'd mentioned. Another reminder email I'd sent us. Uh, other films shot in Port Hope, where I grew up. 
I just want to note that Orphan, the fucking <laughs> horror film, was shot in Port Hope where I grew up. Wow. Which is very cool. Uh, there's a TV show called Happy Town, which I've never seen, but apparently it has Sam Neill in it, and it was shot there. Hmm. Uh, it also features Canada's last functioning atmospheric theater, which is kind of a cool little piece wow. of trivia. But where I live now, Sam, you'd ask me what was shot here, and I totally forgot about this. The place where uh, my wife and I did our wedding pictures, the McLaughlin Mansion here in town, Billy Madison was shot there, and the X-Men Mansion, um, that's where they shot that. Which, oh. uh, the X-Men Mansion is in my town. Oh, okay. So you could just cruise right on over right now and hang out with like uh, Anna Paquin, Hugh Jackman, and... Patrick Stewart, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I was going to say James Remar, but I meant to say... Uh, oh, you're talking about the dude who plays Cyclops. What's his name? Yeah, Marsden. 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 James Marsden. He's not a very good actor. And nothing I've seen yet. Nope. No. Uh, oh, yes. Lastly, our good friend Emily and our good friend Piccolo both sent me some advice on how to work around something, a problem I was having uh, with Hulu. Um, and I want to thank them. Emily, the the suggestion you'd made, I'd known about. Uh, so great minds think alike. And the loaf, uh, as usual, was scholarly in his approach and, uh, and helped me with some ninja techniques. So thank you for that. Nice. Ninja technique. Um, did we want to just since they were here, mention what Outside the Cinema is covering next week. No, I'll, I'll mention it. Well, yeah, we can go ahead and mention it now. Yeah, why not? But they got quite the show uh, coming up next week. Don't forget, it's their, their, did their two-year anniversary on Sunday, right? Yeah, that's this week. That's this week's uh, material, what came out yes. this week. Uh, which they covered Running on Empty, which was an Aussie car exploitation film, and Satanico Pandemonium, which was Mexican non-exploitation. Quite nice, quite nice double feature. And here's a cool double feature for you. Police Woman Goes to New York with Edwidge Fennec getting naked. And uh, the Herman Yao, awesome, Category 3 Chinese gross-out film, Ebola Syndrome. So yes. very interested, interested to see what, uh, what Chris <laughs> thought of that one with our good friend Anthony Wong. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear what uh, Chris thought of that one. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, just because those Category 3 films can be, can be hit or miss, to say the least. And that one's a little bit more hit than miss, only because of uh, Wong, I think. Mm-hmm. And Herman Yao is a pretty serviceable director. But, but yeah, Category 3 stuff can be just... Vile, in a bad way, not even in a good way. Yes, yes, not even in a good way. All right, uh, so that's our uh, obligatory. Now Bill has to send us money because uh, you know their shows uh, on top of it. So he has to send me some cash to make sure that uh, you know we promoted his show correctly. And I need that monopoly money, Bill. <laughs> being in Canada, yes, no, just fucking with Bill. Uh, let's see here. Let me queue up some voicemails. I got some voicemail here. So let me get it going. Da 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 dee. Let's see here. That was a little bit of my Rihanna impersonation. Here we go. Hey guys, it's Lee Weiss again. I'm going to enunciate better this time. Last time I was kind of a wishy washy with my words. A few things. One, why have we not seen any new movies about mummies? Think about it. I mean, they're remaking, they're remaking The Wolfman, which I'm ambivalent about. I don't like remakes. We made the Wolfman. You got all these Frankenstein or Frankenstein esque movies. Not so much either frequently, but you see the whole, oh, I made a monster thing. It's in zombie movies. Uh, it's not the same, but you see it. I mean, you don't see it. 
you see even um, Dracula, a lot of Dracula and vampire movies. So where, whatever happened to mummy movies? Like, I just, I want to see a movie with a mummy that's not The Mummy or The Mummy Returns or Mummies 3, Mummies in China. Just, you know, a straight horror movie <laughs> where the bad guy's a mummy. I don't think that's asking too much. Too, I was listening to what you guys were saying about, like, snuff films, and I gotta disagree. Just on the grounds that, um, uh, I watched the documentary also. I'm not sure if it was the same one. I'm inclined to believe it wasn't, but I'm not sure how many documentaries on snuff films there could possibly be out there. Um, I was actually writing a paper on snuff films for college. And, um, in the documentary I watched, and then read on later, it's Snuff, a documentary about killing on camera from Wesley Entertainment Incorporated. Um, that a few years back, in 2000, it's Italian police agents, it's Italian police and um, British Secret Service joint operation were tracking down these child porn guys who are making these horrible videos and they have all these, these long conversations in which there are documentation of people who were charged for this, who were charged for making the pornography, offering to sell people snuff films. I mean, a snuff film, like, it's clarified in all the movies, isn't a movie that's made just of someone getting killed, because we have those. Those are, um, like, serial killers make those movies, and it's, uh, things that get leaked on the internet. I mean, if what we're talking about is a movie made for the market of just someone getting killed, then yeah, it's definitely out there. Um, not a good thing. I'm not saying, oh, great, snuff, but, you know, I'm just, just, I think that it's enough. And also, this just happened recently, I guess, um, this guy, Wallace Souza, that's S-O-U-Z-A, was a British television presenter. Um, his show, he had a show, Canal Livre, I don't pronounce that right, because I don't speak Portuguese. And basically, I guess it was like, Cops, or, or the, the uh, Mondo version of Cops, and he would have all these crimes on it. And he's being arrested because they're saying that he didn't, that he, had a, he was involved in that, the actual murders he got on the show. Like, that's how he got there before everyone else, that he was, you know, financing these deaths. Um, so, that's my two cents. And I think we need some more money. Love the show, and I <laughs> hope to see you guys soon. All right, that was Lee. Uh, mummy movies. Uh, boy, that's a tough nut to crack right there. That's a dry nut to crack. <laughs> yeah, an old nut, <laughs> so to speak. It's like a, uh, <laughs> it's like an Ernest Borgnine nut. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know why the the mummy for some reason I don't think. I mean, I'm not talking about the big budget remakes. Obviously, they're catered to a family, more family gen- a friendly atmosphere. Uh, and I've said before, I actually have a sweet spot and a guilty pleasure for the Mummy, even though it's it's not a good film. But the first one, I actually kind of enjoyed. Uh, but I don't think the I don't I think the problem is is that the Mummy itself is it's just not a character that's ever been exploited well and kind of viciously. I think what the, what they really need to do is we need to get a, like a vicious like a you know like an ultra violent Mummy movie that might help. Uh, because everyone I've ever seen has kind of been slow-paced and uh, uh, ultimately kind of boring, actually. 
the the mummy unfortunately has been stuck in that shuffling sort of bumbling uh, stereotype for too long. I remember seeing in uh, what movie was it? It was like one of those. I don't know if it was Waxworks or something else where uh, the mummy was pretty vicious actually. And yeah, I think that's the problem is people have this. They're hardwired now to think of the mummy as the shuffling sort of toilet paper man. And yeah. <laughs> if someone can break him out of that, uh, then maybe well, we're on to something. But I've never actually seen the mummy movies. I think Joe Johnston did them. Uh, uh, no, it was your boy uh, Stephen, Stephen Summers. Stephen, he did yes. one and two. And then uh, one, the uh, director who I think is a total hack, did part three, which is uh, Rob Cohen. Yes, he is. And I've never seen any of the mummy films. Yes. Uh, not, as, not as big a fan of the mummy as Lee is. But again, if if someone's open to... You know, I'm surprised one of these Italian guys didn't do like a really splattery mummy film at that time. Well, there's a hammer mummy film. I mean, there's a mummy film. I think that the thing about the mummy film, a mummy character is I think cartoons got it right when they kind of joked around about mummies and, you know, or like Abbott and Costello or somebody. And, you know, if you get a hold of the toilet paper man and put like one of his uh, wraps in a door and he keeps walking, he'll eventually just deteriorate. You know, it's kind of become a joke. And I think that's the reason why the mummy just doesn't. He just doesn't translate well. He doesn't have that kind of visceral feel that a wolf does, a wolf man does. And obviously, you know, vampires are, are popular again, but they've been popular throughout time. Well, this mummies, just for some strange reason, they just haven't really ever translated well for some reason to me. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's what someone's got to maybe bring the mummy back. So people like Lee and other mummy aficionados can uh, rejoice a little bit. Yeah, we need some mummy. <laughs> uh, as far as the uh, snuff stuff goes, uh, I'll just say that Lee knows more about that kind of stuff than I do, and not, not to say anything bad about Lee, but I just don't, you know, I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. So, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll share this on the air. Actually, uh, I have a uh, kind of a natural fear of uh, you know kind of home video shot like uh, accidents and stuff like that. You know those videos they used to sell on TV where you see the lady walking in front of the train and the sort of the Faces of Death series. Yeah, I have a natural kind of fear of that kind of stuff it just really bothers me and i think the reason why and me and large women have talked about this off the air is when the internet first came out i thought it would be fun to kind of look at the grossest stuff possible and this this was before porn consumption junction yeah this this really disgusting stuff and i thought that would be fun but the unfortunate thing is it scarred me for life and now i have no interest in that kind of stuff ever again <laughs> yeah i i really don't i think i've maybe even said this on the air but the reason i don't is is one day it sort of just hit me as i became more of an adult and less of a child and yes. and i'm not saying listen if, if anyone has oh, i don't think anyone quite frankly should enjoy looking at that stuff yes. quite frankly to be disgusted but I can see the morbid curiosity. It just hit me, as with most people a little bit younger in my life, like it did you. But to me, I just stopped and I thought, how would I feel if that was my mother or my my, mm-hmm. my brother? And you know, a bunch of stoners were sitting around going, "Whoa, look at that man! Look at that! That yep. train really <laughs> splattered them." And I would have thought, you know, just just you know, my my loved one yes. is dead now because of a horrific accident, and a bunch of fucking stoners are sitting around, sort of laughing at how gnarly it was it yeah. just it didn't sit with me very well yeah yeah that, that's just maturity and then of course uh you know i didn't i didn't know that you knew i was stoned at the time but yes i was quite often <laughs> as was i believe me oh <laughs> uh, yes the good old days before <laughs> if we used to do the show back in the day it would sound like two todds from show show reviewing films yes 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 or jeff spicoli and todd that, yeah. <laughs> whoa <Yeah. laughs> Indeed. All right. Uh, next voicemail. Oh, this voicemail is going to be fun. Here we go. Sammy, I'm calling about your review of Big Fan. Now, you know, I was I was so excited to see this movie. This is right up my alley. This movie is about me, okay? 
I'm that asshole that sits around and writes down <laughs> what he's going to say before he makes a phone call, you know, in some boring-ass job. That's me. This movie's about me. But you know what? This movie is garbage. You know why? <laughs> it's not realistic at all. Patton Oswald in one of the, the most embarrassing performances I've ever seen. And Michael Rappaport playing the Eagles fan. I mean, you've got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> I mean, when he would call the radio show with, with Scott Farrell and, and he would read these phone calls, they were the lamest phone calls I've ever heard. I mean, you know, and Scott Farrell was like, oh, that was a really great phone call. They were so lame. He was just basically spouting off facts and, and it had no bite to it. And, and he's a terrible actor. And, and, I mean, the scenes where him and his buddy are sitting in the parking lot during the game, and there's clearly no game going on anywhere near there. I mean, it, it was just terrible. I think <laughs> the guy that directed this is a first-time director. I think he wrote The Wrestler. But, man, he missed the mark big time on this one, boy. And the end of this movie, I'm not going to spoil nothing, is so lame. <laughs> I mean, if it, if it would have went another way, I probably would have been down with it, but, I mean, the way it went was just really lame. And, I mean, you know, right away, you got to compare this to Observer Report. Here we go. I mean, <laughs> Observer Report, to me, did it right. This was just low-budget shit that, you know, any asshole could have made this film. I mean, Patton Oswalt, if he was trying to, you know, project like a pathetic sports fan, he did not do it at all. And, you know, like I said, Rappaport at the end is the obnoxious Eagle fan. It just totally was not realistic. I mean, this is, this is my world. This is where I live. And they could have easily casted this a lot better. They could have casted Artie Lang, which would have been much better. Of course, he just stabbed himself nine times. But <laughs> I think he would have been better. Or even Seth Rogen would have been much better in this. Oh, uh, I had to pause it for a second. <laughs> <laughs> To, to say I love uh, the hit is, is is it's just you know it doesn't even do justice to how much I love this guy. And and since it's pause, let me say I was howling listening to this voicemail. I played it back for my wife. I fucking <laughs> dug it so much. This guy. All right, we're getting back to it here. And I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it was all there to be a great movie, kind of like Taxi Driverish, but it just didn't have any of that. And I think. Part of the reason that you liked it is because the team that you root for has that embarrassment of riches with your six rings. You can take one of them and shove it up your ass. If I get behind one more fucking pickup truck that says six-time world champion behind it, I'm going to fucking lose my mind. And Will, too, your team with the embarrassment of riches, too. And Will, man, I hope you're not rooting for the Vikings now after what that son of a bitch did to your team. We're waffling back and forth. Am I going to play? Ain't I going to play? I fucking pray this motherfucker breaks both his legs and can never walk again. That's my prayer for Brett Favre. Oh, man. So I kind of come out of retirement on this phone call. And uh, it took you, Sammy, to drag me out. I knew you were going to give us. I saw on Twitter that you saw this movie. I knew you were going to give it a good review. And coming right off of me, I gave it, I think, one and a half stars. So anyway... Congratulations! You drug me out of retirement. I'll see you later. Bye. All right, that was the the hit, the one and only. <laughs> uh -huh. 
oddly enough, just to kind of keep it real in the current events, it almost looked like Brett Favre could have broke a leg uh, this past Sunday. He oh, got, he Jesus. got, he took some hits. So he got beat up good, man. I mean, Greg Williams' defense. I mean, they were just, they 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 did a number on him, man. Yes, I know. Head just doesn't like the fact that uh, my favorite team has won the Super Bowl six times. Obviously, you know. In, in all fairness to him, though, up there, I'd imagine that would be a real pain in the ass. If you're an Eagles fan, I'd imagine other, you know, Pennsylvania nearby relatives uh, are, are relative to that area. I should say not relatives. Uh, yeah, that could get probably pretty annoying, I'd imagine. <laughs> well, head on the bright side, at least they're not <clears throat> they're not yelling one for the thumb anymore because they got the one for the thumb. So yes, um, yes. But at, and I want to clarify on the. I'm not a Minnesota Vikings fan. Obviously, I'm a Packer fan. And yeah, to even say you would be a Minnesota Viking fan would be uh, would be blasphemy. blasphemy. Yeah, oh, my. I fucking hate the Vikings. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I had such a, a love for Favre that, and I've been soured a bit by him, but uh, by what he's done. But can't, I couldn't help but admire what he did this year as a 40 year old man. But uh, no, it's all about the Saints, baby. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's see them uh, win one. Although I, a part of me did want Favre to win another Super Bowl, but. Yes. But then that would mean Minnesota wins, and it just... Hey, look, I can relate to all this in a way. I live in the Kentucky, uh, southern Indiana area. I have been barraged with fucking Colts shit. I hate the fucking Colts. All year, and uh, it drives me crazy. It just drives you me know, fucking nuts. <laughs> Sammy, you know what, what Peyton Manning's nickname is? Or what It is in a certain circle that it should be more well, it should be a more well-known one. What I refer to him as is fetus head. <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's true. Nice. nice. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh but anyway, yeah, big fan. Uh I was a big fan. I can't uh, can't help it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh I think maybe the film was a little too close to reality for the hit, and sometimes, you know, that can sour people on a film. So maybe a little too close to his reality. I don't know. I gotta see it and so I can chime in on this. Yeah, yeah, you got to. Yeah, you got to. Because I really don't know what side of the fence you're gonna fall on. Because it, it it could be device it could be a divisive film, I think. Yeah, uh, just like observe and report. I mean, in some ways they're very similar, in some ways they're very different. But uh, in both ways, in all ways, they're divisive. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. Uh, okay, uh, next voicemail. It's the heady call back. It's pretty funny actually. And by the way, I'm glad that Avatar won Best Picture and James Cameron won Best Director at the Golden Globes. How you like them apples? <laughs> Four or five years ago, he said, "I'm going to make a film that's going to revolutionize the movie industry." And he did. <laughs> he did it when everybody laughed. So how you like me now? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Obviously, yeah, the head did like Avatar a lot. Uh, as we know, I'm done talking about Avatar. Unless Jay calls in, that's it. <laughs> yes. Uh, no Avatar speak. Even though I will say that I saw today it overtook Titanic. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I, I don't think worldwide. I just think in the States. But uh, amazing. I cannot deny the fact that this guy has the he has the box office wrapped around his little finger. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, part of me is proud that it's a Canadian that owns uh, Hollywood, yes. but part of me still laments that. It's a Canadian, but it has to be a film like Avatar. <laughs> yes. Well, of course, it had to be. It couldn't have been yes. something more esoteric. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Next voicemail. Um. Hey, gents. This is Blake. I just recently started listening to your program, posting uh, on your boards, but I really enjoy the show. Um, 
I uh, hope you guys don't mind that I uh, have just kind of been picking and choosing. I'm not the listener who knows, uh, say, like a lot of obscure exploitation flicks, but, uh, you know, I, I'm aware of, of a decent amount of films. Um, so it was easier for me to start with you guys uh, dissecting Kill Bill before I started listening to you guys talk about, uh, you know, like uh, more obscure films that I hadn't seen. But I'm, I was pleasantly surprised and um, just listened to the new episode and I'm excited to see this Killer Instinct duology and uh i don't know if you guys got this i mean i mean they're both based off of uh real life um so it's interesting but um it reminded me um your description of the the films very much of eric banna uh his first film 2000's chopper um you know charismatic uh you know, criminal, um, and his kind of, uh, obsession in, with his own cult of celebrity. But I thought that was interesting and, uh, just excited to hear about, um, the film and, uh, otherwise, um, yeah, just want to give you guys kudos and tell you I'm really enjoying the show. Peace. He called back. Um, play this one too. Hi, uh, this is Blake again. Uh, I forgot to mention one really interesting part of the tail end of the episode was Jay's voicemail. Like, I just thought it was uh, pretty interesting, pretty funny. Like, like what an angsty review of Slumdog Millionaire. Like, he was like, Slumdog Millionaire. Bullshit. <laughs> And I just thought that was pretty cool, pretty intense. A little diatribe on uh, Slumdog Millionaire. So I just want to give uh, big kudos to him for that. It's pretty intense. Um, also, I wanted to know if you guys knew about the auteurs. It's like a social networking site that started up just about film and for film. I thought it was pretty neat. Didn't know if you guys had checked it out, but... For fans of the show, too. Uh, pretty neat little uh, site. You guys should check it out, but otherwise, you dudes have an awesome night. All right. So that was Blake calling in and giving us some uh, feedback. Uh, he, he asked about Chopper, right? Yeah, he did, uh, which which is a fine film, a fine performance. Uh, it's... <clears throat> I think he 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 sort of asked if Mayreen was like that. Not quite. Uh, Chopper was a lot more insane than Mayreen was. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and sort of uh, canceled himself out. Uh, but I guess it would be an interesting triple feature. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's not similar completely, but yeah, as a performance piece, you could you you could compare you could compare them, but uh, yeah, kind of different to say the least. Yes, and as for the auteurs, I'm familiar with it. It's interesting. I've, I've only dabbled my toe in it, but or dipped my toe in it. Uh, interesting site. Um, yes, 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if there's anything else, there's something else. Oh, Jay. Jay is the king of the diatribe. Yes, he is. <laughs> he is Jay Diatribe. That's his name. I say diatribe because I'm down here in the south. Not di- <laughs> di- Not your diatribe. Diatribe. <laughs> All right. Next voicemail. Hi there, gents. Uh, Ian, uh, again. I hope you guys are doing well. Um, so, Mayreen, um, I saw the first part, actually, in the cinema, um, I believe August last year it came out. Part one came out, and I think it was three weeks later the second part came out. Um, but I only saw the first part in the cinema. Um, I don't really know why either. I just didn't get around to watching the second part. It wasn't for not liking the first part. Um, I thought uh, Killer Instinct was in my honourable mentions. It was in my top 30 last year. Um, I I will maybe argue that the it's fairly conventional in the rise and rise of a notorious underworld figure um, with that kind of storytelling. Um, maybe there wasn't anything too... Oops, I have myself turned down. Let me pause for a minute and just say that uh, I didn't listen to this uh, voicemail all the way through because sometimes I like to keep them fresh for the show. So in case there is any spoilers in here, although I don't think Ian does spoil anything, uh, just want to warn everybody now. So I, I, I just don't know because I didn't listen to it all the way through yet. So I like to keep them fresh. All right, here we go. Uh, that's what she said, right? <laughs> all right, here we go. Back to Ian. Too much that surprised me, even though um, the set pieces were brilliant. I thought the opening credits... Uh, for the first part were brilliant as well. Um, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I seem to remember it was kind of like a split-screeny stuff of um, seeing uh, Mayreen and uh, Sylvie. Uh, and it, it, it was kind of coming up with, like, one half of the screen would be the action and the other half would be, like, the credits or something, and it would kind of go all over the screen. I believe I'm remembering that correctly, whereas the second part is just credits on a black screen. Um and yeah, I mean, I, I I liked it absolutely fine. I mean, I thought um, Vincent Cassel, um, Cecile de France, and um, Gerard Depardieu were uh, all really really great. Um, but I've got to say, I literally finished watching the second part about an hour ago, and compared to the, uh, the first part, I mean, the second part would probably breach my top ten for the year last year. Um, I've, I've got to say. Um, I believe they're 2009 films anyway, so yeah. I don't know. I, right. Or are they 2008? I mean, <laughs> they, they were released over here in 2009, so I'm, I'm whatever. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I thought Public Enemy number one was um, far more satisfying, to be honest. Um, I liked the chase movie aspect of it. Um, I thought that had a bit more going for it in terms of um, giving you some, some surprises than the uh, the first film did. I mean, the courtroom break is fucking spectacular. You know, uh, you, I, to be honest, I think that was pro- that might have been my favourite scene in the entire film. Um, just I, I wasn't expecting it at all, and I just thought it was very very clever. I mean, compared to that, the jailbreak. Um, spoiler alert for ten seconds or so. I will say the lawyer. Um, coming in and helping out i thought was a little bit you know really uh, I, I i i i didn't think that was really um set up very well and um i mean i know he's charming and whatnot but it 
that just felt a little odd to me, I will say. Um, but, I mean, apart from that, the breakout was, you know, again, very, very clever and whatnot, you know. So, um, And I thought Matu Amarik uh, was uh, fantastic as well. Um, I can't remember which one of you guys it was who said that, but I'm um, saying about his intense eyes. I mean, that's the thing. His, just his eyes alone seem to make him, like, taller and more imposing than... Um, that than pretty much anybody else in the room. I mean, I think that was something he that was very effective in Quantum of Solace actually, and and in this one. Even though I like the joke where um someone says the that and the short one, and then it just cuts to him looking like what? Yeah, I I, I thought that I thought that was great. Um, I will say as well. Uh, I was as soon as uh, Louvine uh, Sunye, uh, the woman playing Sylvie, whose name I probably just destroyed uh came on screen I, I first thing i kind of thought was i hope we get to see her naked next scene tits um fantastic uh that was very very cool but um i actually thought she gave a really good performance as well um the kind of more the woman who just wants to have the fun life than i remember cecile de france um playing um but you could see that she really did love him and especially that scene when they have that little confrontation um, you have to believe that she loves him to kind of go through all that and still be with him after. Uh, and I'll also say that that whole bit with the reporter was pl- flat out creepy with that cave with the candles and whatnot. I thought that was very very well shot by um, Jean- Jean-Francois Richet. Uh, I, mu- I must say it was it really was very very upsetting. I absolutely agree. And uh, yes, also that final sequence is fantastically edited, and I just loved the last shot as well where slight spoiler alert but you know um (laughs) in the end of the day for all the big man big deal stuff that he played up throughout his life in the end of the day there he is just a man with bullets all up in him you know and blood kind of hanging off his face a very (laughs) very 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 haunting last shot so yeah i mean um, in all, I'm going to be picking these up on Blu-ray for sure. Nice. Uh, they come out in the UK on Blu-ray on Monday to buy. They've been out to rent for a couple of weeks. But um, yeah, uh, really fantastic. And I want to thank you guys for kind of pushing me into watching the second part as well. I was going to get around to it, but, um, but I hadn't. And now I'm glad I did. So uh, thanks very much, gents. Oh, and also, I will say as well, I did very much like Public Enemies, but I thought that the second part of Mayreen did far, far better Yep. in uh, portraying the why the public kind of liked him, why the media liked him, than Public Enemies. Though I will say, I don't think that was the point of Public Enemies, but yeah. um, <laughs> that's a discussion for another time. All right, cheers, gents. Bye-bye. All right. Good old Ian from over at the Cinerama podcast. Uh, that's interesting. I, I thought it sounded like his voicemail was going one way, and then he ended up liking that second part quite a bit. That was That was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things that we had discussed um, – I think watching them back to back, I think because they're so similar tonally, and I've heard this complaint from a few people now, my beef was that the second one wasn't more introspective, but I think if you give yourself a break between them, I just think maybe the filmmaker wasn't trying to make those that film. He was just, he wanted to make sort of a, you know, uh, testosterone-fueled, sort of smart gangster film, I guess. The truth of the matter is, as a whole piece, as a three-and-a-half-hour to four-hour film, uh, they're fucking amazing. That's what mm-hmm. the truth of the matter is. I mean, and I, I don't really regret at all. Um, you know, watching them, I watched them actually backwards, which I said on the show. 
Uh, I don't regret that at all. I don't think it's still. I still don't think it had anything to do with my scoring, but it might have. But now hearing Ian talk about how he saw the second half, uh, you know, in the proper format, and he still liked it a lot. Maybe, maybe that's uh, maybe you know maybe that didn't have any effect at all. I don't know. Uh, I think it's just a matter of taste. I don't think the first half is bad at all. I just like the second half a little bit more than the first half, and I think you were vice versa. So, yes. But you can interchange those two things very easily. I don't think uh, there's any difference really in the two. It just depends on your personal taste. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to. And uh, to give you guys a heads up, I'm possibly going to be doing a review of the new Wolfman film with uh, Ian on Cinerama. Nice. Just, so we're going to try to work that out. As you guys know, he's he's quite a distance away, even further than Large William, so uh, we got to work <laughs> that out. So, <laughs> But hopefully we're going to do a little something for the Cinerama podcast, and I'll let you guys know if that happens. So, All right, next voicemail. Hey, gents, I wanted to thank you. It's Randy. I'm really looking forward to the Mezrine films. I got them coming, and that just seems so up my alley. Every so often, you'll recommend something, and I suddenly have Sting in my head hopping around in his little diaper from Doom, yelling, (laughs) I will find them! I will find them! Which is kind of embarrassing, but I haven't been able to get him out of there since the 80s. A couple of quick notes on Drag Me to Hell. had a great time. I could see where it's sort of a mediocre movie in many respects have one glaring problem, Justin fucking Long. <laughs> I think that's his name. That that apple smarmy, you know, I'm the tooly cool guy. No, you're not. You're the guy I can't get off my goddamn flash things. I need to install software for a year to keep him off my computer. <laughs> you get all that, you get that money, and then you want to come be an actor? No, sorry. They should have just cast the fucking Geico Gecko put a tie on that son of a bitch and he could have been just as emotive as that douchebag was at some point you're not an actor you're just a fucking virus in my opinion i'd also throw tom cruise and john fucking travolta in that same category you may disagree with me but if you do there's a specific chinese hell just waiting just for you sorry hey i seem to be pretty good at this ignorant bitching how about observe and report i had a problem with it Again, it's the problem I have with most everything nowadays when it seems like it's not so much a narrative story as it is an assemblage of set pieces trying to be clever. Case in point, he goes into the mall and 25 cops can't stop him. I don't know about where you live, but where I live, if some asshole did that, he would have been stun-gunned and he would have spent the night alone in a lock-up cell doing an imitation of a lollipop with a nightstick up his ass. Okay, (laughs) rant concluded. As soon as the Mezzarine films are going to come in, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch them and the Pusher trilogy back-to-back, and then maybe open my own meth lab. See how that goes. (laughs) Thanks for everything. Out here. All right. That was uh, good old Randy, or Damocles66 on the Twitter, a good friend of the show. Uh yeah, no more no more comments on observe report. Hey, uh, I, I guess there is a Chinese hell reserved for me because I actually I enjoy some uh, John Travolta and Tom Cruise films. So <laughs> uh, I do to a lesser degree, but <clears throat> Justin Long I thought was one of the better parts of Drag Me to Hell. But um, you know uh, he's not for everyone. Certainly, can see how he would be considered sort of a smarmy sort of you know whatever but well the truth yeah. is is that <clears throat> oh excuse me the truth is uh, i don't like justin long in anything else but drag me to hell uh that's the only film i've ever really liked him in i just can't stand him in anything i didn't i hated that dodgeball movie i wanted to kill somebody after i watched oh, it oh i love dodgeball <laughs> i hated it <laughs> <laughs> hated it uh but uh that you know that that's that's just the way it is uh but yeah i am i'm looking forward to from paris with love i'm gonna you know i'm gonna check it out the uh the kind of butch uh, looking uh, 
you know, John Travolta with the bald head and the goatee has uh, got me going there, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Looks like it's going to be a total ripoff of a John Woo movie, but I'm okay with that. Chewing it up, chewing up scenery like Jaws, man. <laughs> yes. I like it when he chews it up. All right. Uh, <laughs> or, or, yeah. That's what she said again? Or he said? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Randy. We appreciate the uh, anytime, buddy. Call in feedback anytime. We appreciate it. All right. Next one. Hey, Jens, it's Emily. I just wanted to chime in on the um, why some women might be attracted to Vincent Cassell uh, question. I, I mean, he's not the most uh, attractive man in the world, but just speaking from my point of view, and I'm a lady, is I think he's got that same quality that like Viggo Mortensen has where you just know he's, he's not a bullshitter. Like, you, um, you, I mean, you, you can't really picture him, like, on Access Hollywood talking with that, like, fake, smile kind of like he just seems like a real like man's man um and i don't know that he is because i really haven't watched those kinds of shows in uh europe so maybe i'm wrong <laughs> but I, I think he's got that quality to him that he's just somebody that cares about his work not so much about his image and um also the dude's married to monica Bellucci. Yep. so you take like one of the most gorgeous women in the world who also is a very interesting, very intelligent artist, uh, and you kind of assume she's got to see something there. So I think uh, the combination of those things makes them both uh, somehow more attractive that way. Um, that's all I've got. Goodbye. All right. Emily, chiming in on what uh, the Vincent can sell. I think, you know, now thinking about it, I think he has what I like to call animal magnetism. Uh, you're just naturally attracted to watching him on screen. And I like what she says, that it's sort of that believability. It's not this sort of, you know, uh, wimpy kind of Hollywood actor. It just he seems real, which I like. Yes, yes. Okay, next voicemail. Hey there, gentlemen. It's Brian from Northern Ireland here. <laughs> I'll be doing this introduction in the style of Clint Eastwood from Play Misty for me. <laughs> Sundance starts today. I've got my VIP pass. I've got 42 films on the docket. Whoa. I've recently lost my job, so I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> I've got lots of coffee, and I've got my audio recorder. So hopefully I'll be able to get some sound bites and interviews for you sweet gentlemenians. <laughs> I'm about to leave to go to my first showing, and I'll return, and you can listen to my dulcet tones, talk about some recommendations that may tickle your fancy for the coming year. Over and out. <laughs> hey lads, um, first day. One thing I gotta say, um, the whole Sundance theme this year is uh, this is your ticket to Cinematic Rebellion. Um, their introductions are all, you know, don't choose a side, rebel, rebel against cinematic conventions, rebel against Hollywood, rebel against the popcorn tat. And then the first film that comes up is an HBO uh, production. Nice. So, a bit of a contradiction there. So, saw a good couple of shorts yesterday. Uh, the best one was this amazing animated uh, piece with all the logos of the world um, chasing down Ronald McDonald, a bank robber. Uh, <laughs> really, really cool. You should try and check it out. It's a French production, Logoramia, or Logomania. Um, there was a Spike Jones one. It was pretty lame altogether, you know, these computer heads, but, uh, you know, shorts are cool. So the feature that I saw yesterday was Get Low, uh, Bill Murray, Robert Duvall, Sissy Spacek. You know, this thing looked, it was top of the list. It was a gala opening evening event, and I've been looking forward to it. So it opens up 
house on fire. Uh, guy smashes out the window on fire, runs towards the camera. Then find out Robert Duvall is a hermit, big scraggly beard, long hair and all that. Uh, he's always got the, the rumours about him that he's a cannibal, that he's killed people in the fist fight, you know, no one really knows. He, he's an enigma. Um, then he beats the shit out of someone with a with a stick who throws a stone at, it, at his pony. So what he wants to do, he wants to have a funeral while he's still alive, So and he wants to invite everyone who's got a story about him so he can hear what all these people say about him. Enter Bill Murray, who's the funeral director. Um, pretty cool, yep. Unfortunately, from the seventh minute on, I was looking at my watch, constantly waiting for this piece of dull pants to friggin' end. My God, how could you go wrong with such a good cast? Uh, let me say the performances are decent, but my God, I stayed right till the end of the credits, hoping that there'd be a Q&A and no one had even turned up to talk about the thing. So, what I can say is get low, get stuffed. Right, cheers, um, I'll chop you again. Okay, lads, uh, day two. Um, highlight for today, French film. You know, first they come out with Inside, Frontiers, Last Year's Martyrs. Uh, they've done it again in seven days, which is a sort of revenge, suspense, horror, thriller. Uh, it, it crosses a lot of genres. Uh, but it's basically about this family who gets their seven-year-old daughter raped and murdered and uh, the father, who happens to be a surgeon, gets a hold of the guy that did it and uh, holds up in a, in, a, in a country shack and basically tortures him for seven days um, you know, to get retribution and uh, redemption um, but really this film operates on so many different levels than just, you know, just a, a straightforward torture film it, I, I found it was more about the the emotional torture, you know, that that, that the family's going through, which is which is just horrendous. But yes, there are physical torture scenes, and by golly, they, you know, they took it out of me. Um, I've seen a lot of imagery in my time, and um, I honestly, this was the closest that I've been to blowing chunks or even painting, you know. Wow. It was such an amazing lull across the audience, you know, packed house. There wasn't one word. And I was actually surprised that that uh, more uh, that nobody walked out. But you know, this film's definitely one to watch. Um, it just crushed me, you know, mentally and, and physically. Uh, you know, I, I, it was it was an awful feeling coming out. Um, but not in a, not in a bad way, but it was just a, an, an emotional ride. Incredible. Um, so just as well, I had Tucker and Dale versus Evil to go to afterwards. Now this film here, it's it's a it's a real uh, cracker. Like you know, it's uh, it turns like the teenage slasher genre on its noggin, and uh, it's just hilarious about these hillbillies, and they're just out for the for the for a day trip, you know, to go fishing, and there's some uh, college <laughs> college children uh, camping nearby, and just things go go wrong. But it, it's it's hilarious. So that's a good one. So anyway, ta da. Okie dokie, picking a pokey. Come to the conclusion that if I if I review everything, we're going to be sitting here for, for hours on end, so just going to go through the, <laughs> the, the best ones that are, or that are probably of interest to, to yourselves and, and the millions out there. So, uh, Buried. Ryan Reynolds, Buried Alive in a Box for an hour and a half. Incredible. Uh, it was just uh, phenomenal. You know, the, his performance really opened my eyes that he's more than just a romantic comedy lead 
even though he may not be able to do Remo Williams, but he's pretty good in this box. The camera work was fantastic. <laughs> it was all practical effects, no CGI, which to me, you know, the, the, the stuff that they were able to pull off in this film is uh, far more impressive than any blue Smurfs flying around on dragons. Nice. So, <laughs> next, we have Splice, which was uh, a really, really cool, you know, modern day Frankenstein. Amazing effects, both practical and CGI, and uh, the film goes in so many dark corners uh, you you won't believe. But really, really cool. So that's for today. That's buried it in splice. Ta ta. Okay, just quickly, stupid question of the day. Buried Ryan Reynolds, truck driver of Iraq, gets kidnapped, buried alive underground for ransom. Um, somebody at the back of the room asked the director if they had actually. Uh, filmed it on location underground which was quite ridiculous <laughs> so at the end of day three I've uh, racked up ten films um, I've still got seven days left to go so I'm well on my way to 42 happy days to one and all and talk to you later alright that was Brian with a Sundance report nice I love it man because yeah. you know I haven't been keeping up with much much of the stuff that was going on at Sundance um so it's cool that he called in and, and gave us some, some load on that Seven Days film. I just was doing some research as he was talking about it because it really mm-hmm. made me take notice. That's a French-Canadian film. So, yeah, again, uh, let okay. me say Vive le Quebec, <laughs> which their film industry, I think, is, is leaps and bounds ahead of most of Canada's right now. And sadly, no one really pays attention to them. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out for that one. Uh, the Buried film, I've heard uh, some good buzz about out of Sundance. I've seen some good. It's already gotten picked up by Lionsgate, I think. So heard some good and, buzz out of that one. And it's a shame about Get Low because I know I really wanted to see it at TIFF and we didn't go see it, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but maybe it was a good thing that we didn't because well, if it's as dull as, yeah. as uh, Brian's saying it is. then Sounds like it might be a matter of personal taste maybe. It might be dull yeah. to Brian, might be awesome to you, might be average to me. So True. I still, I'm, I'm going to check it out, obviously, either way. And uh, that one even talked about Tucker and Dale or whatever it is. That sort of looks like a spoof of or a take on the whole sort of backwoods hillbilly kind of uh killer thing it's got that the redheaded speaking of dodgeball the redheaded pirate he was in uh serenity um oh alan tudyk yes yes it's got him in it as sort of one of the hillbillies and i gotta say i i this thing's been covered on twitch a fair bit it it holds no interest to me none (laughs) whatsoever i haven't even seen anything about it so i i I evidently i've just kind of overlooked it the whole time yeah, to me it looks just you know very obvious sort of mm-hmm. stuff. All right, all right. Well, thanks, Brian. We really appreciate it. But I like the music in the uh, Clint Eastwood opening. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> the Irish Eastwood was awesome. <laughs> get get stuffed. All right, all right. Next next voicemail. Hey, what's up, guys? The back of Force Wicker's neck. And uh, yeah, man, last few episodes were fantastic, especially the Rima Williams episode. That was a great review. And I'm not sure if it was from that same episode or not, but someone called up about the Gary Busey movie, Bulletproof, and I got to commend them on that. Uh, I, I forgot about that film. I, I saw it when I was a kid in the theaters, and the only scene I remember is, like, Gary Busey coming home after, like, killing terrorists or wherever they were. And I remember him, like, doing some, like, self-surgery on his arm in, in the bathroom, like, removing a bullet and putting it in a, a jar of other bullets. And <laughs> just remind me how much I miss, like, 80s action films where you really get a peek at the, the action star at home and what he does, you know? <laughs> like, 
you know, like Rugged Howard wanted dead or alive. Like he's, he's like the best bounty hunter in the world. He comes home from work, hangs up his gun on his like gun rack and <laughs> you know, has he unwind. He kind of listens to some music and he fucking throws a basketball against the wall. You know, not even a fucking hoop, just against the wall. He's just, so a fucking bounty hunter does when he gets home, you know? Like Bruce Willis in the last Boy Scout, you know? He doesn't sleep in a bed. He wakes up in a car with a squirrel on him. And he just fucking throws a dead squirrel off, smokes some cigarettes, he goes home, he argues with his wife. Because that's what tough guys do, man. Like Mel Gibson, lethal weapon. You just wake up butt naked with a cigarette, drink some beer, and you throw the beer at the TV. And hardcore. And, like, the best, Stallone and Cobra. Comes home from yes. a hard day of work, just fucking... Bumps the car out of his parking spot, goes upstairs, he takes a pizza, not even out of the fucking fridge, but out of the freezer, and he cuts it with a pair of scissors, oils his gun, and he watched Toys R Us commercials. Man, that's a fucking hardcore cop. And I really miss the essence of the action star at home from the 80s, man. Anyway, this is a really fucking stupid message. I'm sorry. Metal. <laughs> good old back of Forrest Whitaker's neck there. He makes a good point, man. Back in the 80s, there was a lot of scenes where, for some strange reason, the action hero had to go home, and you had to see like that personal life. Seems like they've gotten away from that quite a bit, and I do miss that quite a bit. And I have to disagree with him wholeheartedly. It wasn't a stupid message. That was an awesome message. <laughs> that was. That was. Yeah. He brought up. I mean, he brought up a lot of good points. I mean, we just don't see that anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, the action hero at home. I want to see these badass guys how they act at home. <laughs> oh yeah, and I, the, the scissors thing in Cobra is one of my favorite moments in '80s action cinema. It's just so ridiculous. Uh, I know it doesn't even make any sense. No, it doesn't. It's just like you know, why would you do? Why would you just eat the whole slice? Why would you cut a piece of pizza with scissors? This doesn't make any sense. And from what I understand, behind the scenes, it was uh, Stallone's idea to do that. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's just some kind of character moment. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's awesome though. All right, we're ready for some. Uh, are you ready for some uh, music? Because I got a voicemail here with some song, some songery coming. Let's let's do it. There we go. I was just a skinny lad, never knew no good from bad, until I trained with my mom and my dad. You know, my name is Jerry, and my face is really hairy, especially when I fought at the Mopoli. <laughs> oh, you're going to march all day and all night. Oh, we're going to get into a fight. Oh, we're going to so show some chiseled flesh, a jacked up Spartan, he's going to make a real man of me. <laughs> I've been fighting wolves and freaks, flexing my pecs and my butt cheeks. <laughs> I can take on a hundred Persians with a grin. All I need is my sword and shield, and I'll bend them to my will. I'll be bouncing big Spartan balls off their chins. <laughs> Oh, you're going to fuck and you're going to fight. Oh, we can do both all day and all night. Oh, we don't need no women. Great big Spartan, you make the homoerotic world go round. <laughs> I got chiseled arms and legs, a hairless chest like a beer keg. And some real short shorts that are cut way up to there. And you know I got my Spartans, and you know we'll all be farting. 
<laughs> I want to feel his ass cheeks on my facial hair. <laughs> uh, Gerald Butler makes some shitty flicks. Uh, he just wants some Spartan dicks. Uh, Jennifer Aniston's got nothing for him. He needs a Spartan who is jacked up and named Jim. Yeah, he needs a Spartan who is jacked up and named Jim. He needs a Spartan who will jizz all over him. Get up your swords and fight! All right, the incomparable awesome. dot Zom. <laughs> awesome. Oh, uh, yes. That's a little a little ode to 300 there. <laughs> Possibly the most homoerotic film in the last 10 years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, wow. That, I, I got that voicemail, and I listened to it like three times. I just laughed so hard. <laughs> That's good stuff. I know Demise is going to really love that. Yes, she is. <laughs> All right, next voice. I don't really have a whole lot more to add other than thanks for the creativity and the good time there, Zom. Yes. <laughs> Next voice, Will. Large William and the Severi. Did that sound macho enough for once for Metal Mikey? I think so, possibly. So, where does that leave me today? It leaves me commenting on your Marine episode. I was tempted to intentionally mispronounce it, Mezarine. But, hey, you know, I can only take so much cultural literacy as you will probably pick up on later tonight when I record my newest episode of Action Attraction. None too so plug. But let me get on with my talking points here. First off, William, you know, I pretty much said what I needed to say about uh, Drag Me to Hell when Samurai kind of commented on it on the show. I mean, you know, we don't necessarily agree with our opinions on it, but as mentioned, since I am in Michigan, it's not like I feel a tremendous sense of loyalty to Sam Raimi, so you don't have to worry about me coming over to the general Toronto area and, you know, late siege and a Viking style. So you're good. Late <laughs> siege. And I must say thank you for the metal break intro after playing my promo, Samurai. Nice. <laughs> but I do have to mention that when you had that beep inserted in the middle of the song... <laughs> It's kind of bizarre because I thought, did you just get a radio edit of a song? And no. they said something really nasty on there, and you just hear it. But, oh, Ron's still on you, Samarik. I will have to review 1,000% on Rambo 3. It's the one I keep forgetting how it ends, and also there's just nothing really of note in it. It was just very staid and actually kind of a stale movie. Didn't really feel like it had much momentum. I will give it to both of you that Van Helsing was horrendous. Thank God I didn't actually pay to see it in the theater. Yeah. Demise's message. I had to make note on Demise's message because it was just, it was really well thought out, but at the same time, it was just so eerie, too. It was kind of like <laughs> one of those missing tape kind of sounding things. Yeah. And as for the actual content of the episode itself, I would actually love to see this marine duology or double douche yeah. as you so yeah. it. But <laughs> again, it's just I'm not very import friendly. I don't really have an import three an import free 
Region 3 player. So it's not really an option for me at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I would just love to see these movies. Uh, what, what's a film lover to do? Well, outside of calling the GGTMC and just say, good job on another episode, and I cannot wait to hear what you've got coming up next. Obviously, you mentioned what you're covering on your next episode, but uh, I'm too stupid to remember what it is off the top of my head. Can't wait to hear it. Take it easy, William. Take it easy, Rick. And I will catch you again soon. Adios. All right. Yeah, I've actually invited uh, Mikey to come on the show with us and maybe do uh, The Mechanic. I'd be game for that. Yeah, yeah, because he was talking about maybe doing it for his show, and I was like, well, we'd like to do it on our show, too. Maybe you should just come on, and we'll just do a, you know, we'll just do a little together action, a little, uh, you know, a little menage a trois again for the three three podcast guys. <laughs> uh, no penetration, though. No. All right. <laughs> All right, we got the one last voicemail here, and then we'll wrap it up. Here we go. Well, hello, GGTMC, my favorite gentleman in the world. This is uh, Sean from Chicago calling. Long-time listener, long-time caller. Missed the hell out of you guys. Haven't heard from me in a while. Uh, just a few things. I'm one of those people who hates Meryl Streep and her giant fanged vagina. <laughs> I don't know why she's become, like, the number one box office female star in the world. I, I don't know what it is about her. Every time I see her, I just want to punch her directly in the face. <laughs> Sam, you are wrong about Avatar. As Jay would say. What? Uh, I think that... It's a spectacle. It reminded me of, you know, the old style spectacle. Let me pause that. Did he say spectacle or did he say testicle? Because I, I didn't quite understand that. I think he said spectacle, though. Well, <laughs> spectacles like Ben Hur. You know, it actually would make, you know, combined with the graphic effects and the 3D, it actually makes you need to see it in a theater to experience it properly as opposed to, you know, watching it on DVD, of course, until the 3D TVs come out. I thought that. At least Cameron took the time to develop the characters. You know, I mean, of course, he always takes three hours with every movie, but they were mostly bad characterizations like he does in all of his films. I mean, you know, he's not the greatest writer in the world, but he is a great visual stylist. Um, You can't take away from the performances of Sigourney Weaver, who, of course, was playing Ripley as a 50-year-old grandmother, but uh, (laughs) nobody can stop. Stephen Lang in that movie, he was a total drill sergeant badass that could wipe the floor and piss all over Arlie Ermey's ashes. He was fantastic <laughs> in that. And Sam Worthington is a horrible leading man. Yes. He was the blandest dude I've ever seen in my entire life. But Zoe, uh, I think her name is Zoe Saldana, Uhura from Star Trek, was amazing in that movie as well as CCH Pounder. And it was great to see West Studio in a studio film again. Um, anyway... I love the fact that you guys covered Remo Williams. I called him the show a long time ago about it, and it's one of my favorites from the 80s, one of my favorite action movies that was always sad that I didn't make a second uh, second part of. Uh, Guy Hamilton is, I think, one of the superior Bond directors who directed basically an American Bond film. Um, and ever since Remo Williams, I have a fear of the Statue of Liberty. I fear when I go up there I'm going to be attacked by workers who are paid to kill me. Um, the uh-huh. tune, I think, is the best fake politically incorrect Asian since Mickey Rooney in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany. Joel Gray is fantastic in that movie. He completely disappeared in it. And uh, uh, Fred Ward, what an amazing, underrated actor. I even liked him in Naked Gun, 33 and a third, but uh, of course everybody will say Tremors. But he's just, uh, he's a great actor that's really unappreciated and should have been a star after this movie. I mean, nah, but I still think you should have kept his mustache from the beginning. Anyway, lastly, I want to know if you guys uh, 
have seen House of the Devil yet. Uh, I think it's one of the best movies of the year. Very slow burn, very 80s-style horror movie. Uh, I want to know what you guys thought of it and if you saw it. And also, you're also wrong about Drag Me to Hell. Uh, it's probably like my number one horror movie of the year. <laughs> Raimi was back, but of course I am a huge Raimi apologist, and of course I'm a giant fan of the Three Stooges. But I think it's like one of the darkest, uh, darkly hilarious movies. Darkly hilarious is a word. Darkly hilarious is this this. Anyway, I think it's great, and I think it's very, very funny, and one of the best black comedies that I've seen in a long time. Better than Observe and Report, anyway, even though Seth Rogen is a hunk. All right, love, love, kiss, kiss. Miss you guys, even though I listen to you every week. Okay, bye. All right, that was Sean. I haven't heard Sean in a while. Hey, guys. Oh, wait, wait. Take it easy, Lee. You've already, you've already had your turn. Yes. All right. <laughs> uh, that was Sean. I haven't heard from Sean in a while. I mean, I see him every now and then on the uh, PlayStation Network when I play video games, but I haven't heard from him much lately, so it's good to hear from him again. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to say about Avatar, and you don't really have much to say about Drag Me to Hell. They're just you know, un- underwhelming on both ends for just us. You know, that's the way it is. And to say the least, I am a, I, I'm not a Raimi apologist. I'm just a fan of Raimi, and I like the aspects of Drag Me to Hell. I'll say that. Uh, I don't, I think, uh, you know, I, it, that's just me. I mean, I, I just like aspects of it. I just didn't, I, me, I can't get into the, and I've said this before, and I've said this to you a lot, I can't get into the possession and demon type stuff. It just doesn't do anything for me anyway, so. Nope. Well, I mean, it could for me. I mean, there's some great examples of it. I just, I'm just, I'm not a Raimi. I mean, I just think I'm just not a big Raimi fan. He's, he's, he's fine, but uh, I've just, I've never been a big fan. Yeah. Uh, As far as House of the Devil goes, though, we can both agree that it's fucking brilliant. I'll take, I'll say this now. I'll take House of the Devil over anything Raimi has done. That's just my opinion. Uh, but uh, I, I, I can't go that far. But yeah, I can't. I can't agree with you that uh, recently. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you got to see a simple plan. That's one of the masterpieces uh, of the yes, ages. Fair enough. I do need to see a simple plan. <laughs> and uh, you know, and of course, I have a soft spot for Evil Dead because it hit me at the right age. Uh, and I think that's. I think some of us Raimi fans. I think. I think it's where you get the Raimi fans. I think you get them to hit to hit them right at the right age because. Uh, like my wife has watched a little bit of Evil Dead Two in the background when I'm watching, it, and she just thinks it's like the worst thing ever created. She thinks it's like the dumbest movie she's ever seen before in her life. <laughs> I like Evil Dead One and Two, I do, but uh, I don't know. I just I, I don't know. It didn't hit me the same way it hit everyone else except me. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, that's uh, all of our feedback, Large William. So uh, you want to go through your uh, pleasantries and whatnot, and uh, we'll talk yes. about what we're going to cover. Because I'm going to while you're doing that, I got to figure out what I'm going to cover next week. Okay, so I'm going to try and make this quick because we've had a long feedback section. Um, and that's not where it is. Uh, hang on here. I've right, hit yeah. the wrong page <laughs> in the wrong book. Oh, whoa. Okay, here we go. Okay, now don't forget to check out our sister shows outside the cinema and show show. Uh, we already mentioned what OTC's covering next week. Check out all the other Pop Syndicate shows. Uh, check out Chinstroker Chin vs. Punter, Better in the Dark. Cinerama with Sir Ian Loring, Action Attraction, The Metal One's Own Podcast. Check out Terry Frost's excellent, excellent podcast, Paleo Cinema. A Big Red Podcast, who I, you know, technically is part of Pop Syndicate, but I ignored uh, Alyssa Deeps and Derek for so long, i got to mention them individually here. Um, check out Cinecultania, Ben's podcast. Uh, in terms of websites, check out Sean's HorrorCommentary.com, which we haven't mentioned in quite some time. These are all .blogspot.com, uh, the following blogs, of course. Uh, this is Quiet Cool, Deadly Doll's House, Chuck Norris Ate My Baby, Pickle Loaf, uh, Lightning Bugs Lair, Naked Eskimo, Heavens with a Z, 
Evan's Trash, Death Rattle 13, and Dear Bastards. Uh, while you're at it, head over to cinema-de-bizarre for all your hard-to-find genre needs. Type in promo code GENTLEMAN for 10% off your orders. Uh, vote for us on Podcast Alley. Please leave us reviews on iTunes. It means a great deal and helps us raise our profile and get more listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, friend us both on Facebook. Join our Facebook group. And Midnight, of course, we haven't mentioned in a while. It's spelled M-I-D-N-I-T-E. Uh, and I keep meaning to move them up, but I don't. Uh, you can donate to us, certainly. But uh, Oh, yeah. Let me, let, let me mention real quick on the donation front. I want to thank everybody that has been donating. Uh you know, we've we've had donations ranging from you know a dollar here to a lot more, and I want to say thank you very much. Uh, continue to do so, guys. You guys are uh, you know supporting the show in, in so many ways you don't even understand. So I want to say thank you, and I don't want to mention any names. I just want to say thank you to all those who have donated very much. I just want to say thank you. So I want to say thank you too. I mean, that's your hard-earned money you're making, and you're giving it to us. So thank you for that. And before I do forget, uh, head over to ParisCinema.net for our dear friends Dylan and Christine's wonderful magazine, Paris Cinema, of course. Now, have you had uh, time to figure out what you're going to... Yes, we talked a little bit about this earlier, uh, the other night. So uh, we, for me, next week, we're going to cover H.P. Uh, Halicki's Gone in 60 Seconds. The original Wicked. Gone in 60 Seconds. Very nice. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's, nice. it's been on the roadmap since September of 2009, or 2008, maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're right. No, this is going to be good. Very good. Uh, on my end, we're going to be covering a, an Andy Sidaris film. Ooh, whoa, hey, yeah, yeah. nice. <laughs> Available from uh, Cinema de Bizarre. It is featuring my namesake, William Smith, and that is Savano's Seven, about a team of seven hitmen trying to stop the bad guys from taking over Hawaii. Lots of guns, lots of boobies, lots of William Smith. Yeah, I do my William Smith impersonation on that show. <laughs> It sounds something like something like that. Wicked. It's going to be a, a testosterone field show next week. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Cars and boobs. It sounds like a gentleman's guy material, to say the least. Oh, yeah. Oh, and guns. Don't let me mention yeah. guns. All right. So that will be it. Uh, I guess until next time, we want to say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find The Gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call The Gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email The Gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.
the thought.